This episode of Tales from the Backlog, like every episode, is listener-supported by people like you. Some personal heroes of mine, like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zulgeek, Chris Copleen, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Jeff, formerly Jerf, Kieran, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, J.D., Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Brian Skersha, Randall, Jake Martin, Jenny E., and new VIPs, Ryan and Delaney McBride, have all chosen to support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash realdavejackson to kick a few bucks a month my way, and in return, they're getting some cool treats, like they can vote in what games I do on the show, they get some bonus episodes, and much more. If you want to learn more, once again, you can go to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. And with all that being said, winter is coming. everybody, my name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. My guest today is a friend of the show, host of First Five on YouTube, and a man who can MacGyver anything you need out of some wood, wires, and rolling papers. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this one for a few good months now. Um, I've definitely enjoyed listening uh, to your stuff. I know you covered um, one of the... Yeah, I found you originally because you had covered uh, Silicon Dreams. Right, and that's part of the reason I was excited to have you on the show is because I've done at least two games that I found by watching your videos. Uh, The other one was Unsighted. Uh, So... I figured it was about time I reach out and uh, yeah, you know, get the inspiration on the show. So welcome. Yeah, and I was uh, I was really excited to be on here, especially after getting to hear that episode and a few of the kind of different other ones. Uh, just because, like, you know, it, it it's always telling, you know, like it it that it's a good podcast when I'm sitting there listening to it, especially that Silicon Dreams episode. I was just like bursting at the seams, wanting to be the third guy in the room, being like, "This yep. is how mine went. This is what happened uh-huh. to me." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. So it, absolutely lovely to listen to. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for that, and thank you for coming. And we've got another one of those games where I feel like if people are listening all the way through the spoiler section, they may want to jump in with how this game made them feel. Uh, That game today is This War of Mine, which is a survival sim game developed and published by 11-Bit Studios for just about every modern platform, first released in 2014. If people are listening and have not played This War of Mine, this works the same way as every other episode of the show. We're not going to spoil the story for you right now. There will be a timestamp and a very uh, obvious place where the spoilers begin. So if you want to jump out before getting spoiled, Go play this game for yourself, have your own experience, and then maybe hop in the Discord server and share those experiences with us. You'll know when to jump out. So if you're listening and you don't know what this war of mine is, we have elevator pitches like always. I say this war of mine is survival in an active war zone from the civilian survivor's perspective. Alex, what would you say? Uh, I would say if you like Frostpunk, which is the game 11-bit came out with after this one, 
Uh, you are really going to like this one as well. Uh, they're very mm-hmm. similar. They run on kind of, you know, they run on a lot of the same thematic lines. Uh, and if you enjoyed suffering in one, you're going to enjoy suffering in the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do have a thing, don't they? They do. <laughs> uh, some quick stats before we start. I played this, I started this on Switch, and then I quickly realized that I would rather play this with a mouse than a controller. So uh, I switched to PC. It took me about 10 hours to finish my one complete playthrough, and I played a couple hours of my Switch playthrough just to see how it was different, you know, stuff like that. How long did your uh, complete run take you? Uh, It was very similar for me. Uh, It took a little over 10 hours. I I really, um, really let it kind of go when I was, uh, you know, during, during the day portion of the cycle and really tried to eke out every second of that. Uh, so I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit longer, but very similar. Okay. Yeah. So you can expect around that time if you want to complete uh, one of the scenarios. There are different scenarios that you can do that might have differing lengths. I'm not sure. So Alex, when we talked about games to have you on the show, you had mentioned this as a game that you were hoping to get out of the backlog. So we always start with our personal histories with uh, maybe 11-bit studios, and with this war of mine, what was it that made you want to play this in the first place? So this war of mine is kind of a bit of a cult classic, right? Where mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like maybe not a ton of people have actually played it, but it definitely, when it came out, it did the rounds uh, through like general games criticism, which you know I, I was paying a lot of attention to at the time, of course. Um, so there were just so many people that had gushing praise for this game uh and labeled it as like a very like important game to play yeah and so i've always been super curious about it uh i you know i ended up picking it up years and years ago in some steam sale with like 10 other games as i used to do and and oh you know as that story usually ends i played about two out of those 11 games that i just never got around uh to this Mm -hmm. war of mine so i'm very happy to finally have the opportunity and you uh, you kind of mentioned in your elevator pitch about Frostpunk. I assume you played that game, too? Yes, yes. Uh, which has made this a very interesting experience um, coming back from Frostpunk uh, and having, mm-hmm. you know, like playing through these games in reverse. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like diving into a favorite band's discography, you know, like the yeah. lyrics are different, the songs are different, but the music is still exactly the same between these two mm-hmm. games. Uh, which is definitely something that was constantly in the back of my head uh, when I was playing this game. And it's, it's going to be a bit of a struggle for me to talk about it without constantly relating it to Frostpunk. That, that's fair. Um, I see, I played maybe a couple hours of Frostpunk and I bounced off of it. And I was there's a couple reasons for that. I was playing on PlayStation and I feel like that's another game that just works mm-hmm. better with a mouse. Um, and also, I don't have RTS brain. And Frostpunk is kind of like that, you know, constantly setting people off to do jobs and stuff like that. This War of Mine is much simpler, like from a gameplay perspective Mm -hmm. than Frostpunk. Uh, Frostpunk's now on that list of games that I want to revisit, especially after having played this. But what uh, what put this on my radar was um, I missed it when it came out. I wasn't really paying attention to, to video games much at the time. And this is just on those lists of like, you know, if you look up the 10 best games to play on Switch that cost three bucks or something like that, you'll find this game, one of those in those videos or those articles. Uh, I also got it in at least one itch, 
uh, charity bundle feels like every time there's, you know, the, the charity for Ukraine or something like that, like this game's always in those bundles. So I have it multiple places. I bought it on, uh, steam. I bought it on switch. I got it on itch. It's, it's everywhere. Um, and I'd always heard kind of like you, that this is one of those quote important games. Uh, whenever there is a new, uh, fucking genocide or war or something going on, like this game pops back up and the developers talk about how like this game's not directly about any one of these events, but it applies to just about all of them. And, uh, you know, different journalists and stuff will bring the game back up. So this is, uh, Mm. Yeah, it, it just it just keeps coming around and then yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how it does feel like it relates to all of those wars but like in the opposite way of how you'd usually expect, right? Uh cuz whenever somebody talks about like oh, it's like a generic story that's supposed to apply to everything, like a real everyman tale, you know, people, you know, like assume a certain kind of story that's going to be like very generic in its details is going to leave a lot of things like blank for the audience to insert themselves into. Mm-hmm. This war of mine doesn't do that. This war of mine is incredibly specific. And as you said, it's a much smaller, it's a very focused game. Yeah. But it still rings true for all of those conflicts because all of those conflicts are the same and they all cause the same problems and the same miseries. Uh, right. And so even though it is like this fictionalized war and it, and it's, you know, uh, so focused on like the lives of like a half dozen people maybe a full dozen if you you know include all the random npcs you come across mm-hmm. even with that incredible specificity it still feels so true to all of these conflicts yeah exactly it's it's kind of like uh you know locations might be different cultures might be different but like the suffering is seems similar in a lot of those places so um a couple things i want to shout out bef- uh that also kind of got me to play this i did an episode they released in November 2023 uh, about games that are set in real places, but not the United States and Japan and Western Europe, you know, like uncommon settings for video games. And one of the guests, Randall, brought this game up. This game takes place in a fictional place, but it might as they might as well have said that this takes place in Sarajevo or something like that. Uh, so Randall brought that up, kind of talked sugar about it for a while, kind of pushed it up on the list. It actually put, pushed me to put it in one of the polls that I do on Patreon, and then it won the poll. So that's why this game's actually here, is because it won that that Patreon poll. I feel like it would have been here eventually, but shout out to everybody who voted for it. And uh, yeah, before we get into the story and stuff, we give some quick opening thoughts about the game. Um, and I, I just want to start out by saying, like, this game, the elevator pitch is that it puts you in the shoes of the civilian in a war zone. Basically, every other video game about war puts you in the soldier's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, it puts you in the shoes of the civilians uh, during times of extreme scarcity uh, in a city under siege and teach you about the decision-making um, and help you try to empathize with like the daily struggle. Um, I think it's a really commendable goal for a game to... Uh, try and take this on a really uncommon perspective. And there's so many video games about war, but this is a really uncommon perspective to focus on the civilians. Um, I think they did a great job of it. It, it, I think there, there could have been a lot of ways where this felt ham fisted or Mm -hmm. felt insensitive or any number of bad ways this could have come off. But I think this is really good. 
And then I do eventually like agree with that quote, important label. Like, I think this is a game that a lot of people should play. Um, I do want to say straight out, like you will hear out there that this game like makes you feel like you're in a war zone or something like that. And I'm not going to go that far because I think that's a ridiculous thing to say. I played this in the comfort of my game room on my PC. Uh, so it didn't make me feel like that, but it does help you empathize with decision-making and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I think that's a great summary of both, you know, the game's importance and, uh, you know, like how it functions on a narrative level. I don't think I can add anything to that. Uh, but mechanically, <laughs> this is a very specific kind of game uh, that a lot mm-hmm. of probably roguelike players are kind of familiar with, where it is a perpetual engine. If you're ahead and you could keep shoving more fuel into the engine, you're only going to get more ahead and more comfortable, uh, you know, and and have an easier time of it. But if you're behind and you don't know quite how the rules work yet and that engine ever starts slowing down even the slightest bit at any point, you are mm-hmm. in danger. And that's when all the, you know, the horrible gripping war narrative stuff comes in when you have to make up for it and you have to find ways to fill that engine and get it going again. Yeah. And like, we'll get into it, of course, but along those lines, I had several times where I thought I was doing great and then just... Mm-hmm two things broke the other way. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, what am I going to do now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Especially if you just do like you can you can be cruising along and be doing great for hours and hours. And then you can just do one stupid thing when you are, you know, out and about trying to scavenge for loot. uh, And suddenly you are in crisis mode. (laughs) Yep. So we will uh, put a pin in that. We'll listen to a bit of music. And when we come back, we'll kind of continue this conversation. We'll set up the setting. We'll talk about the story and a lot of the ways that this game's uh, narrative can uh, show itself. So this war of mine takes place in the fictional city of Pagorin. I'm going to pronounce it that way. They never say it out loud in the game. Uh, in the fictional country of Groznavia. And in Pagorin, a civil war has been going on for years when the game begins. Uh, the quote that the game says is, When the civil war broke out, many people thought that it would only last a couple of weeks. It's been years since government military surrounded the rebels in the capital, cutting off all supply lines. The civilian population in the city are suffering from hunger, disease, and shelling. So you are immediately put into this setting of a city under siege. Uh, Not just, you know, a regular war zone. This is a siege. Supplies are cut off. People are scrounging for anything that they can find. Uh, And not only that, people are not fleeing. This isn't like a refugee situation. It's people, they might be in their own homes, but all the supplies have been cut off. Yeah, um, and I know we're going to get into this in a little bit, uh, but like, it's very telling that like half these, all of these buildings are bombed out. Yeah, half of them still have people living in them. 
uh, you know, it is one thing for, uh, you know, how they introduce it for you, the player, where your band has come and found this derelict building and now you need to build it up. But it is mm-hmm. another thing when you go out somewhere and there's just a family living in a house that's just missing its back half. Um, and they're, they're like still functioning and you show up there, you know, every Sunday to go and trade with them. So it it is very, uh, the, the visuals are very strong, uh, at setting that tone. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the visuals because the visuals are a big part of setting up the tone and the atmosphere for this game. It's mostly black and white or very, very grayed out. Uh, and then there are some, you know, lights and, you know, red colors, yellow colors from lights, and uh, maybe there's fire and stuff like that. Uh, so the the almost complete absence of color in the game really sets this kind of desperate tone. It's like a, like Fallout 3 on steroids, you know, there's no fucking color in that game. Um, and the, the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is the way they fill in empty spaces. Yeah, with like the little painterly, like the like drawn in scratches and stuff and all the shadows. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful touch. Yeah, the scratches and stuff kind of just swirling in the shadows. Yeah, it mm-hmm. feels oppressive. And it really does a lot to sell just how desperate everything is. Yeah, uh, I was to say it's not quite as novel in this day and age, maybe. But back when this game came out, it you know, like it was kind of an early example of like you know like indie games taking a kind of like mixed media approach right like yeah all of this is built in a video game and there are you know polygons underneath all of it but it's drawn in a very like harsh hand-drawn style you know there's all kinds of like real world media mixed in there with like actual photographs you know of of real people for all of the survivors and stuff uh, so it, it is a very, um, may, maybe not quite as much today, but definitely for its time. And I, I still think very, um, you know, striking and unique in its presentation. Yeah, effective for sure. And I'm glad you mentioned the photographs too, because that's, it's something like, it kind of got me sometimes when things were, things were looking bad for my group. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a, a group of characters that you're controlling. You you might have one. I had up to three at certain points in my playthrough, and they all have these character portraits down in the bottom right of the screen, and they're real photographs. And not only are they real photographs, they're uh, moving. Like th- they'll sit there and they'll blink and look straight forward at the camera and stuff. Like it, it kind of humanizes these characters because the camera mm-hmm. zoomed out in a way that you'll never see their face on like. The character model, you know, but their face is always down in the bottom right of the screen staring right back at you. Yeah. One thing that always hit me uh, about those photographs, the blinking is a really nice touch, but what always hit me is how, you, you know, like how unkempt I, I guess everyone is yeah. in each of those photos. Like you, like it does really like, you know, capture the look of like the, you know, oh, oh over here. You know, in actual safety, uh, you know, people can worry about their skincare routines whenever they want. But in the middle of an active, you know, in the middle of an active war zone, that's not something you can maintain. Uh, And, you know, like these people, you know, they are grimy. They are, you know, covered in acne. They're, you know, they they look like they have been or are going through it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it is it is such a small detail, you know, and maybe, you know, like, oh, man, I got acne all over my face. Like, not as bad as like, oh, man, I'm literally starving, but like still a sign that, you know, like people people are not uh, as they'd like to be. Right. Like this yeah. is not the ideal situation. You know, presentation is important. This sort of thing is important for a lot of people, myself included, um, you know, and so it does kind of you, you know like help kind of like capture I, in a small way the you know the desperation of the situation that it's it's not even something you could think about you know something that in peacetime would be at the top of a lot of people's minds it's not even a consideration anymore right it's it's me thinking about how i don't want to take a shower after we finish recording this <laughs> yeah it, <laughs> um you mentioned how people are basically they're not you know, the version of the person they used to be, or the they're not mm, thinking yeah. about things as their old life would have allowed them to think about. We take over a group of survivors, and I think that your group of survivors can differ between playthroughs, even on the same platform. Uh, so I'll tell you who I got. You tell me if it was the same people that you had. There are 12 playable characters total. On my Switch playthrough, it was a father and daughter combo, and I think that was a DLC thing. Because uh, they, uh, of all the things, they introduced a DLC that brought children into the mix uh, in this <laughs> game. And on my PC playthrough, which is the one I finished, I had a woman named uh, Katya, who was a journalist, I believe, uh, a character named Pavle, who was a pro soccer player before the war, and Bruno, who I don't remember what his uh, profession was, but his skill was cooking. So maybe yeah. he was a chef or something like I, that. I had the same thing. And yeah, okay. uh, Bruno was a celebrity chef. Like he had his own celebrity like, chef. Yeah, he had his own like cooking show, basically. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, we, we actually have three, I would say higher profile uh, professions mm-hmm. here. We have a, a journalist, a professional athlete, and a, a celebrity chef, right? And then, as you said, they're all brought down to this just very common... Um, baseline level of uh, trying to survive. Yeah. And that's that's basically what you do. You get your survivors, you try to keep them alive, and you're trying to just wait until the war ends. That's how you win this game, is by surviving until the war is, until a uh, ceasefire is declared. And the narrative in here is, so, all right, two two levels of narrative. You have like the top level narrative about the war and how the war changes and you know, stuff like that. That's really sparse and really basic, uh, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. What's more like present all the time and then uh, more effective, obviously, is this emergent narrative, the way that you keep these people alive, the things that happen to them along the way. My characters get sick. I had a character die. There's permadeath. I did a bunch of stuff that I didn't feel great about to keep my characters alive. All of those things are with you minute by minute, I think, more so than the overarching like plot plot. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting because the uh, it was always the smallest moments uh, that were the ones mm-hmm. that stuck with me with this game, right? Like the, the overall kind of like general plot and vibe of what's going on is just kind of like this ever-present haze of misery and strife. Like pretty much everybody is going through it in this game. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you kind of just get a little desensitized to it all. But through that kind of like just like 
fog of misery, there are always these little like tiny moments that like punched through uh, yeah. uh, and just like reached out and hit me in the gut. You know, some of them positive moments, a lot of them, you know, like negative, like very small details. Like, uh, like I remember, you know, the first time I, I don't know if this would qualify as a spoiler or not, but the, the note when you first walk into the hospital, mm. you, you walk in and it, it mentions the, you know, it, it lists like the casualty list and, and, you know, from like the, the, the numbers that it's putting down of like the patients in which wards have died, you realize that, oh, you know, when this hospital got shelled, you know, it directly hit the children's ward, right? You know, so it's yeah. like little details like that just pierce right through all the general, um, you know, like, like misery in the game. Um, and the, those are kind of like the, the littlest details are the ones that touch you. Uh, I guess in that way. Yeah, there's so there's two things you brought up and I want to talk about both of them. So let's talk about the bad stuff first, because I think that's what this game is most famous for is Mm -hmm. like the setting is famous. The 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 conceit of the game is famous. But the other thing that you will hear is that this this is a game that forces you into either morally gray or just outright evil things to keep your people alive. And a lot of games uh, do this. A lot of games try this. A lot of games feel cheap when they, mm-hmm. you know, make you do evil things and then like wave their finger at you when you're done. You know, how could you do such a thing? And it's like, well, I'm playing a video game. I don't have any choice. The other, the only choice I have is to turn the game off. Yeah. I think this game earns more of those decisions because number one, they all felt like my decision. Like you mentioned the hospital. I made the plan to go to the hospital and steal medicine. Because I knew a hospital mm-hmm. would have medicine in it, I did that. I made that choice. I could have stole. I could have gone somewhere else that was supposed to have medicine to try and steal some medicine, but I chose the hospital because I thought it'd be easiest. Stuff like that. I made that choice. I made the choice to uh, to rob somebody's house and then sell their stuff back to them. I did that. Uh, so, like, <laughs> oh, no. this uh, this game puts you in desperate positions and then asks you like what are you willing to do to do it the other thing and you know i had uh little mental battles like okay this character is really sick i'm short on resources would it be better for the group if that character died so that the rest of the group could could, uh carry on those are natural situations that come up throughout the game and then you have options for how to deal with them so whenever i did something bad to keep the group alive I really thought like that was my choice and it was not cheap that the game put me in there. Cause mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, like maybe I was in that bad position because I made a bad decision like five days prior and just really fucked myself over. So stuff can compound and put you in those situations. Yeah. And it's also kind of interesting how, you know, the characters themselves also, you know, get an opinion. You, you know, mm-hmm. as the player, you get ultimate say, uh, on you know what horrible things you're going to do, but you can't necessarily drive a good-natured person uh, to you know transform into a terrible axe murderer. Mm-hmm. You know they they will not go along with that, and and so you know like no matter which choices you're making, you're going to have somebody questioning you, or at least I did between my characters. You know, if I did something charitable, you know, 
Bruno would always complain and be like, no, these are our resources. We need to look after us, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if I took the cold hearted, you know, option, then Pavel and Katya would be the one would get really bummed out and be like, oh, man, I really wish we could have done something about this. And it does put additional weight on your choices, or at least I felt additional weight on my choices, because there were a lot of moments where I was like, yeah, I could go steal something. Like, yeah, I could go to this place and hold somebody at gunpoint. But do I really, do I really want to deal with Katya, you know, getting the Uh depression modifier and things just getting absolutely worse and way harder to manage when I get back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fact that your characters will, uh, because on their character portrait, there's a little link to go read their character bio. And you can basically read their journal where they write about how they feel about how things have gone. And, um, yeah, there were, there were times like when I, you know, robbed somebody, uh, all the characters had something to say. Like one of the characters said, you know, I, I really wish that there was another way. I don't feel good about mm-hmm. that, but we survive another day because of it. Stuff like that. Um, and I just, I, I want to kind of reiterate how I think that this is a, again, another tightrope for this game to walk to, set up these situations, but not feel like they're saying, okay, at this point in the story, we're going to make you do a bad thing. And then we're going to yell at you and call you an asshole for doing a bad thing. And, you know, there are a lot of games that do that kind of thing. Um, When you don't actually have any say in the choices you're making this game, I feel like you do always have a say. And then your characters also have a say about what happened. So I did some bad stuff and, uh, some characters got that depressed modifier and wrote in their diary about how terrible they feel. And it, it makes it hit home a little bit harder, I think. Yeah, 100%. The other thing in this part two of what you brought up earlier, and I'm glad you brought this up too, mm-hmm. is that there are good moments in the game too. This yeah. is not just 100% post-apocalypse hell world, like cruelty 100% of the time. Uh, in here. This is um, a very human game, I feel like. There are lots of opportunities to do good things as well. Uh, Neighbors will come to your house and ask for help. The trade-off being like, you will have to send a character out and they will be unavailable for anything else the rest of the day. You might have people coming up and asking for food, or they might say, my mother is sick. Do you have any medicine? And you can make the choice of whether to give them your precious resources. And then people will help you out too. People maybe show up at your door and say, hey, we grew these vegetables. Please, please take them. Mm-hmm. And so interspersed throughout this just overall gloomy atmosphere of the game. And then like like you said, those moments that really punch through and it's like, ah, oh, fuck, can't believe that happened. You also have these really like wonderful human moments as well that I think really, really help help me like get through the game because it's not a fun game to play. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Um, It is kind of interesting because it does do the thing that a lot of games do. Like it's got the Bioshock effect where if you do the good thing, you know, like it feels like a sacrifice, but you quickly figure out like mechanically that you're going to come out ahead than if you had done the dick thing, but it still rings true because it gives this, wonderful feeling of kind of like community with a lot of the other characters in this game Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people in this game 
that are absolutely terrifying. There are a lot of people in this game with guns, and they will point them at you. Mm -hmm. There are very few people in this game that I would, like, call, like, assholes or, like, villains or, you know, like, objectively evil people. You know, I, I said it before everybody is going through it in this game and like even even a lot of the people that are perhaps less than likable are just other people in the community trying to survive the same stuff that you are and it you know like the uh, the number of people that are like actually like capital b bad you can count yeah. on one hand yeah that's definitely true just kind of running through let's say rough experiences that I had, there was only maybe two people that I'd be like, yeah, that's just a complete good for nothing. You mm -hmm. know? So yeah, that that's absolutely true. And I think the fact that number one, everyone you're interacting with is trying to survive. And number two, the fact that you have these moments of people like sacrificing to help each other uh, does also mirror the real world experience uh, at least the the small sliver of it that we experience via you know seeing stuff on social media or stuff like you you will if you look for it and if you're tuned into it you will find you know stories or videos of people helping each other in Palestine right now uh, even though yeah by doing so they are making a sacrifice of some kind and this game brings that to the forefront often enough that like I I don't like I don't want to say that. The people who made this have experience, but they definitely did their research at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And I think I did see that like when I was doing a little bit of development research for the game, which we don't we don't do dev history on the show, but I do like to read a little bit. I think I did see that they talked to a lot of survivors, read a lot of books, watched a lot of documentaries about uh, the places that this is, you know, supposedly based on. Mm -hmm. um, they had name dropped uh Warsaw during World War II. This is a Polish company that that made this yeah. game. Uh so they name dropped that Sarajevo in 1992, Mogadishu in 1993, Kabul and Fallujah in 03 and 04, Syria in 2013, and then they also said it's about Gaza right now. So I think that they looked through different points in history, different, you know, places in the world to uh to really flesh out how they want this all to play out the choices that you're going to make the types of people you're going to meet stuff like that yeah 100 percent uh especially because like with some of the you know like we, we were talking a little bit before about like the hospital that got bombed out and it's like well you know I, i'm playing this game two weeks after reading a half dozen articles about how the one giant hospital in palestine just got bombed right yeah exactly so it it really does uh it it really does pull so many striking parallels with with what is going on with so many you know like current conflicts and, and that's that's one of the ways that those little those tiny details punch through mm -hmm. right because you read a tiny detail and it instantly clicks with something that you've already you know i wouldn't say experience but at the very least like you know like read about and like had to marinate in you know as you're browsing through social media yeah absolutely um one of those things and this is a nice transition into like kind of the way the story gets delivered to you outside of those emergent narratives that come up you venture out at night to go 
uh, look for supplies or maybe go barter and stuff like that. And all the places that you go have at least one lore note around uh, or something that you'll find to give you a little bit of story. You mentioned the uh, the casualty list at the hospital. Um, I wrote down about the uh, flyers that were dropped around the city that basically said, they, they actually said, I, I screenshotted this, this is a zone of anti-terrorist operation. Persons remaining in the city will be treated as terrorist supporters. For your own and your family's safety, leave Pagoran immediately. The army guarantees you a safe passage. Now, where have we heard that recently? Oh, yeah. In recent oh, history. Yeah. Like, those exact words. Yeah. So, And in both this game, you know, the line immediately after that is, literally nobody believed them. Um, yeah. Just as literally, literally nobody has believed it, you know, today in our own world, and it was immediately proven false. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, other stuff that you find, like uh, you'll find propaganda from the government, uh, one that says uh, people should not touch aid packages because they might be poisoned, which is just uh, very cruel. Also, just a absolutely wild assertion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. They're going to drop poisoned aid packages because that's they, they want to kill you. That's what they want. Uh, the people dropping food in, that is. Another uh, notable one, a family pet's grave uh, that I found. And then uh, an unsent letter from um, an elderly couple to their granddaughter, basically lying about the state of things and telling her that everything's okay and making up a reason why the granddaughter can't come visit, basically. Uh, so you'll, you'll go around, you'll find stuff from the government, you'll find stuff from the people, everything in between really fleshes out the state of things outside of your own experiences, we'll say. Yeah, I was to say a lot of the notes that kind of hit me, I would save for uh, behind the spoiler wall but there was um like like there would be there would be like incidents where like something would come up on the little radio you can build and it would like name a very like specific place that i was like oh hell i you know like i i've visit there like every four days that like (laughs) one that's gonna be a huge problem and two i know that place that sucks (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm glad you mentioned the radio that's another way that you get some of the story the radio will kind of give you what's going on on the streets. They'll say, you know, a bunch of crime on the streets. Make sure to lock your houses up. And you, meanwhile, you you mentioned like houses are like they're half there now. Like half mm-hmm. of them are you're blown yeah. half apart. Uh, if your house is standing, like the windows are fucked. Everything's, you know, so good luck locking it up. They'll give weather updates. Uh, the weather becomes oh important God, throughout the, the story. Updates. Yeah, they we'll talk about the weather updates in the spoiler section. I want to I want people to experience those for themselves. And then uh, some other stuff like they will say uh, cigarettes are scarce in the city right now. And they're, they're the price of cigarettes has risen. So that gives you an idea like, hey, if I've got cigarettes, maybe I can can trade mm-hmm. those right now. So the radio is super helpful. Highly recommended that everyone uh, builds one for many reasons. Oh, yeah, definitely one of the first things I built. You know, I guess the do we want to get into uh, just kind of like the general base building and like the day part of this day night cycle? Yeah, let's do that. After a little bit of music, we'll come back and we'll get into that that day night cycle, the gameplay, and how to survive.
So in This War of Mine, it is a survival game and it is, goes, uh, like Alex said, on a day-night cycle. Um, and what you're doing basically is just making all kinds of calculated choices about how you're going to use your resources, how, to get, how you're going to gather them in the first place, and then how you're going to use them. The survival stuff, before we talk about what you do in the day and night, uh, characters have status effects that pop up to display their condition and their mood. Uh, so rather than filling a meter, it's just presented as Boris is hungry or Boris is very hungry, or maybe even further than that. Uh, If you don't sleep, uh, your characters will get tired. Uh, If they get wounded or get sick, that will all be displayed for you, um, and everything can get worse. And then it also shows you their mood. And I never really sussed out whether a character being depressed or not affected gameplay, like mechanically, but I didn't want them to be depressed. Mm -hmm. So I always, like, tried if I could, like... Will turning on the radio help or something like that? Yeah, I never, I never really found out uh, because I, I only ever, you know, got the uh, sad modifier uh, a couple of times. And one time I just told him, all right, just just go to bed for a day. Uh, and it fixed itself. <laughs> uh, and then the other one, uh, I said, okay, just go drink your problems away. And it fixed itself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. So it, I, I'm sure that it affects the character in some way. Um, you know, it seems to be moving on a very similar scale to, you know, all of the other kind of, not meters, but, like, the de- the different descriptors of, like, being hungry or being tired. So I'm sure if you pushed it far enough, you know, like, I'm sure something bad would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, honestly, it was surprisingly easy to manage everybody's emotional state. You know, my my the version of my survivors did not complain a whole lot, even though I really asked them to tighten their belts a whole bunch um Mm -hmm. i I don't know if we want to leap straight over to this uh but you know with uh i figured out a trick early on that people did not need to eat every day in fact uh to yeah to uh survive and so uh, i had my survivors enacting very strict rationing where uh you know everybody was basically eating on shifts and I was astonished. Nobody ever complained about this a single time. Interesting. I fed my survivors better than you did. And my people were just generally sad and or depressed for most of the game. Wow. And it might have been because of some of the things I was doing, maybe because I was not mm-hmm. rationing very well. But the thing I noticed is if they're sad or if they're depressed, they will just sit around the house and talk to themselves. And the things they say yeah. are quite depressing. Oh, very. Yeah. So they they will do that. Um, I assume that if you don't uh, let people eat, they will die. I didn't get to that point, and uh, there's no there's no thirst. Thank God. I don't think I wanted another kind of survival thing to manage here. <laughs> Though there is quite a lot of water to manage still. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. You will be doing a lot of stuff with water for sure. Um, the other thing about your characters is all the characters have traits that help with specific things. So uh, Katya, because she was a journalist, she's good at bartering. So I had her do all the trading. And Pavla could run really fast. So if I was going someplace dangerous, 
maybe I would send him because he could run away faster than uh, other characters. Uh, soccer player Pavlo was. Uh, and I had a character named Boris who joined uh, later in the game who had a permanent injury, which means he's very slow, but he's also Billy, a big, strong guy and he could carry a bunch of stuff. So if I needed to go gather a ton of stuff, I could send him out there. Mm. Uh, if shit hit the fan, he wouldn't be able to run away. So I had to be a little careful about that. But good to have someone who could carry a bunch of stuff because there are very strict inventory limits uh, when you're out scavenging. Yeah, extremely. Uh, I ended up with uh, most of the same characters. Uh, I managed to keep Bruno alive, who was like, uh, we talked about how he was a celebrity chef. Um, he he does this thing. Uh, it, it's just called Good Cook. So a lot of the traits in this game uh along with a lot of other things they don't really tell you what it does they just tell mm-hmm. you this person is x and you kind of just have to figure it out mm-hmm. uh through trial and error what any of that means uh the most uh the most perplexing one of which i got was uh my fourth person amelia who was a very good lawyer that was her ability <laughs> i was like great this is super useful in the apocalypse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really useful survival skill, being a lawyer. Yeah. Um, just, to, just to be clear, uh, Bruno did not die uh, in my game. Oh, I just okay. forgot to write gotcha, him down. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I think Bruno's cooking thing is that uh, in order to cook, you need three types of resources and his cooking was a little bit more efficient mm-hmm. uh, than other people. So, uh, useful. I mean, I just had him cook all the stuff. So, um, let's get into the, uh, day night cycle. So during the day you can't go outside cause there's snipers, the armies, you know, people are killing each other outside. So you have to stay inside during the day. So during the day is when you do all the building and crafting stuff that these games have. You have a lot of options for stuff that you can build. Uh, you can, make workshops, you can make beds and furniture, uh, you can build that radio, you can make a garden. There's all kinds of stuff that you can make. Uh, the problem is resources to do all that stuff. Do you play a lot of these like survival type games, you know, like a Subnautica or a uh, Spiritfarer, stuff like that? When I get a chance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite as often as I used to, uh, just because they they the the venn diagram uh between them and 100 hour long games is almost a circle that's true yeah (laughs) but i i do very much appreciate uh this style of gameplay okay i i don't play a lot of these there has to be another hook like the story in spirit fairer is why i finished that game stardew valley is just liquid cocaine so i've played a lot Mm. of stardew valley (laughs) but uh the thing i noticed about that is like you know a lot of those games they they will present you with the different things that you can build and throughout your time playing, you will actually build the nicest version of your base in Subnautica or you'll max out your ship in Spiritfarer. And in this game, you can make a bunch of plans for the future about what you're going to, I'm going to build a vegetable garden so that I can grow my own vegetables. We'll have self-sustaining food supplies. And in this game, life comes at you fast. Oh, it does. I I think we had very similar experiences because I yeah. <laughs> remember I remember being like I'm going to I'm going to be self-sustaining, I'm going to grow them vegetables and I got like so so a lot of build uh, the things you can construct in this game have like multiple tiers. 
uh right and mm-hmm. the the higher the tier the better you know the stuff you can make with it uh and specifically with vegetables you have to first make a herb planter where you make herbs which are not that useful and then you have to invest all of those resources a second time to get the vegetable planter to make vegetables which was the thing i actually wanted mm-hmm. i made the veg i made the herb planter like 10 days into the game maybe <laughs> i never got the resources to upgrade that to a vegetable uh <laughs> to a vegetable feeder eventually i had to scrap it for resources mm-hmm. having never used it a single time um but yeah life does uh definitely come at you fast in this game there are definitely there are definitely points uh you know where where the survival mechanics cut in uh and your resources are just so strained uh that you are focused on survival and not on expanding any you know like any of this stuff that you want to build and even you know having completed a fully successful run i barely explored any of this stuff right like mm-hmm. you you don't need to build you need to build all of it if you want to thrive but you don't need to build all of it if you want to survive that's a good way of saying it like i built the metal workshop so that i could make a lock pick every now and then um i built you know the the workshop where you can then go ahead and build a bed for your characters and and stuff like that. Um, And I built some heaters and, but all of this is like the tier one version of those things. You can look on the screen and see the tier two version and be like, holy shit, if you, if I upgrade this, I can repair this broken gun that I found and I can have a weapon and I can, I can use it or I can sell it and get a bunch of food. But I, like it take it's not that it takes like a prohibitive amount of resources if you just look at the amount but the problem is you have like real pressing survival needs yeah. that need those same resources so you'll you just <laughs> i couldn't get there if you just take 3 days digging around bringing back nothing but scrap instead of actually useful things you need like food you can mm-hmm. build this cool new thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can repair this guitar I did actually manage to repair the guitar. Did you? I never yes. did. I, I never got I, to a point where that, I could. This, <laughs> th- this was one of the moments, actually, that punched through for me. Mm-hmm. Because this thing had been sitting in my inventory for weeks. At least 20 days. Mm-hmm. I randomly found it. I don't even remember where. And I was like, you know, I'd really like to, you know, fix this up sometime. I bet this would give all my people a morale boost. That seems like a nice thing. And it was just sitting there for the longest time. I could never get the, I could never get enough resources. It always had to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then like, finally at the very end of the game, when, when it was, you know, like an hour from victory, I finally got this thing (laughs) built and it didn't do anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Somebody can hop on the guitar and they can strum it. And it's, it's like, it's actually very cool. Right. Uh, because uh, they had, you know, they have their own like list of like songs that they added and composed for it, you know, specifically mm-hmm. for the acoustic guitar uh, and different characters had different skill levels with it. So you got like different versions of each song where like one person would be noodling and like kind of getting it. And like another person would just like completely jam it out uh, and sound amazing. But it was it was such a powerful moment for me, even though like the guitar mechanically didn't really seem to do anything. It was such a strong moment for me 
uh, just because I had been holding on to this thing for so long. Mm-hmm. I had so many opportunities where I had to say, no, I can't do this yet. And I had so yep. many opportunities where I could have sold it because even damaged and like broken in half, it's still worth something. Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many opportunities where I could have just scrapped it and, and given up, um, you know, and, and just turned it into food. And I said, no, I'm going to hold on to it. And then I finally, finally managed to do it and actually get it built. And like, it's such, it's such like a simple and kind of like generic moment, right? Like that you would, you would experience it like, you know, like any like horror movie, like, oh man, the survivors managed to, you know, get enough pluck to fix the guitar and all hang around the campfire for a little two minute scene. Mm -hmm. But be, you know, because I had just spent 10 hours sitting on this thing struggling to find you know the breathing room to make it uh it was an extremely you know like a a very savored moment yeah i i can see that as like uh you know you can imagine it easily being a victory for your characters and then Mm -hmm. a victory for you as well uh my version of that is i built an armchair like a like a fucking lazy boy. Yeah. And uh, that was my thing. And it was like, okay, well, Bruno's feeling sad. I'll just have him go sit in the armchair for a while. <laughs> That's the best I can do. Uh, but I never got that guitar fixed. Because uh, like there are points uh, in the story and in the, in the, you know, the progression of how things change in the city where uh, I was like, okay, playtime is over. All hands on deck to find these three resources that are going to keep everybody alive. Mm-hmm. Literally no, no energy for anything else. It is a, it's an emergency situation. Um, so that'll happen in the yeah. house during the day. Uh, building stuff takes time. So if you want to send somebody to build a fucking armchair, it's going to take a couple hours and you have from 6am to 8pm in the house. Um, and that goes by pretty quickly as you're playing, I didn't like time it out in real time, but maybe like, I don't five, know, 10, 10 minutes, minutes, yeah, five, 10 minutes. Yeah. Something like that. So, uh, sending somebody to build something or, uh, you like, you can build a distillery, uh, to make moonshine and moonshine takes a long time to make. So like you might put it in there and hope it's done by the time you need to go out and trade at night or something like that. Um, but it, it all takes time. I, there were lots of times when like I couldn't build anything cause I didn't have shit to build anything with. Mm. And so there were certain times when it was like, it is 11 AM. I don't have anything to do. Uh, the person who comes to the, to the door every couple days to trade, they're not coming. It's clear. So everyone go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Happened to me several times. Did you, did you do a lot of sleeping during the day? Oh yeah, because uh, you know if you send people out at night, they come home tired. Or uh, at night, you can pick people to stand guard, and they don't get to sleep either. So that was my routine. Basically, it was everyone's pretty busy at night unless they're sick, uh, or unless they're like they have that very tired status. Then I'll let them sleep. But everyone's got shit to do at night, so it's always like you know from six to to two p.m. or whatever people are usually sleeping yeah i lived my way through this game like a goddamn vampire yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> I, you know you you mentioned all hands on deck every night it was all hands on deck yeah. if you were not scavenging you were guarding and everybody slept in the day 
And that led to some very complex routines because I went down the moonshine distillery direction as well. I managed to get that and the like next tier above it. The Ooh. yeah, so there. If you upgrade, I forget which one of the workshops you need to upgrade, but once you do that, you can build and upgrade. You know, like a second distillery where you take the moonshine and you like distill it a second time into even better booths. Hmm. And then the the thing I didn't get to uh, get to is I didn't manage to make the medicine bed because it said that, oh, and then you could turn the even better booze into the actual medicine, which is like one of the most valuable things in the entire game. I was like, oh, baby, we are here, industry ho. <laughs> uh, but I never quite got the resources to pull that off. Yeah, I was rocking. I was rocking tier one of everything, never really upgraded anything uh, except... The kitchen. I updated the the stove. That was it. Yeah, I was gonna say I upgraded the stove. I upgraded the heater, and then I had to build a second one anyway. Yep, me too. Yeah, um, I actually did fully upgrade because there were three tiers of upgrade or three tiers, so two upgrades for each uh, of the two benches. I did manage to get them both fully upgraded. It was really funny. Uh, we, you know, we could talk about it behind the spoiler wall, but there was um, the last bench upgrade that I had to get in like the last like two days. I mm-hmm. spent like I needed like literally one thing, but I spent a week trawling the city desperately trying <laughs> to find one item <laughs> that I just could not find, uh, and mm-hmm. it was it was brutal. Uh, but we, yeah, we we. I, I did manage to get a lot of things upgraded, you know, like the you know, I, I mentioned at the start, you know, the the perpetual engine. Uh and I managed to feed enough coal in there that it kept, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And around the point of like day twelve, I was in this uh position where I was like, Oh, this is you know, this this is actually cozy. I'm actually like I'm I'm building a merchant society here, you know. I'm I'm uh-huh. churning out <laughs> two or three moonshine a day, you know. Things mm-hmm. are going great. Everything's looking up. I the trader shows up and I clean him for almost everything he's got, and then life comes at you fast. <laughs> yeah, and that did that did not last. <laughs> yeah, and I never got to that point. I never really felt comfortable. It was like the the point of comfort that I reached was like if I if everyone stayed home tomorrow night, we would be fine. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, let, let's talk about what you do at night. So we already said you can send characters out to scavenge. Uh, you can have characters stand guard at home, uh, or you can have them sleep. And if you have a bed, you can let them sleep in the bed. Otherwise, they just sleep on the floor. Going out to scavenge is important because that's the only way you get resources other than bartering with the guy that comes to your house every couple days. So there was only maybe one or two nights when I just had everyone guard and not scavenge. Otherwise, it's like order of business number one is go out and find stuff because you need stuff constantly. Yeah, for you got to feed the engine. It's the only way yeah, you're going to exactly. feed it. Yeah. Um, and then standing guard was something that I neglected for too long before I finally figured out how important it is. Uh, but the the trade-off is that if they're standing guard, they can't sleep and then... I don't actually know what happens if they don't sleep for like a long, long time, but I can't imagine that it's good. Like you'd probably get sick or something. Yeah, the worst I ever did uh, was somebody being awake two nights in a row, and that got them very tired. 
And I assumed mm-hmm. that if I did it a third time, they'd just like drop dead or something. Uh, so I, yeah. I never risked it. <laughs> Um, and and it was also very helpful because like, even if somebody was up that long, they just sleep a double shift during the day and they just don't do anything that, you know, that day and they're, they're fresh again, come nighttime. Right. There's that trade-off though, is if people are sleeping during the day, that's your get shit done at home time. So I was kind of lucky, like, and you two, I guess we started with the same group. Like, we have three characters, so we Mm -hmm. can manage that. Yeah. The playthrough I started on Switch, it was a dad and a kid. The kid can't go out at night, so the dad has to go out at night. And the kid also doesn't know how to build anything because they're a kid. Yeah. So the dad has to do literally everything. And it's just, it's a lot, it would be a lot harder. I didn't play that much in that playthrough, but. Poor little kid sitting home alone on robber duty with a little knife in the yeah. lap. Not a great image. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so when you are sending people out to go scavenge in here, you get a map screen where you can select what location you want them to scavenge at. Uh, different locations have different resources and they'll tell you what resources are at this place. They'll tell you what percent you've looted from the place. Uh, So like I said before, there was one time I needed medicine. So I was looking for places that had medicine. And they'll also give you a little description of the place. And so let's say we have the hospital that's run by volunteers. And then the other place that has medicine is this, uh, this decrepit apartment building where a fucking militia had moved in. And they don't take too kindly to people rolling up to their apartment building. So where am I going to go to get the medicine? I'm going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you get to pick where you go. You get to pick who you send. Different characters have different inventory limits. Different characters uh, can run at different speeds. And uh, different characters may have... I know there's a soldier character that has like better combat skills, for example. So it's always a choice of who to send and where to send them. Uh, And they they start you out with a safe place where there's no danger. You can go there as many times in a row as you want. You can just clean the place out. Um, But then eventually places get depleted. So it starts out pretty simple. And then the real decision-making starts. Like there were plenty of times where I sat and looked at this map screen and was like, there's, there's like no really great options left on here. Yeah, that really stood out to me too. Almost immediately, like they give you the they give you the one freebie. They give you your little tutorial level right at the start, mm-hmm. and all the other options absolutely suck for one reason yeah. or another. I just like <laughs> I'm already I was already on day three, and I was looking at that. I'm just like, ugh, I don't like any of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know you. The there's always some trade off, you know. Sometimes it's a moral trade off, you know. Like there, here's this little cottage with a you know nice little old couple. Uh, do you really want to you know go steal everything they own? Uh, you know, other times it's hey, there's a gang here and they have guns. Uh, take your yeah. chances with that. Um, you know, there there is a wide variety of places you can go. Most of them are inhabited by other people that are yeah. you know exactly in the same situation that you are like this is this is their little base building adventure that they're in the middle of and you're crashing into yeah and and when you go to those places it's a 2D almost like a stealth game like you you can run but running makes a lot of noise and if you're trying to uh make sure those people with guns don't hear you uh, noise is bad and so you kind of tiptoe around 
You can like break open uh, locked containers with a crowbar if you have one or like pry wood off of a doorway. All of that stuff makes noise. So you got to be careful about what you're doing. And um, yeah, you just kind of loot until something bad happens or loot until you're full, like inventory's full. And um, one thing I thought was uh, nice is if shit goes wrong, there's a button on the screen that says run to exit. And if you click that, your character will just book it to the exit. You don't have to control them anymore. It is a godsend. Absolutely. Yeah. Happened a couple times where I was like, okay, we're leaving immediately. Yeah. There were definitely a couple times where I got caught, guns were getting pulled, and I just needed mm-hmm. to not be there in that moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of these places where you can go scavenge that maybe the people there are not aggressive, but they don't want you trespassing, we'll say. Yeah. Like there's a uh, mechanic shop that it's one of your early places you can go to. And I think I, these might be somewhat, no, nah, there's no way. They're they're probably similar, right? Through playthroughs. It was early-ish for me. I think it was in like the second set of places I could go to. Yeah. Um, there's a mechanic shop. The people who live there are not hostile. Uh, you can go trade with them. But... Uh, if you go into their place, they'll get angry and then they'll eventually get hostile if you don't leave when they tell mm-hmm. you to leave. So there's a bunch of places like that that are not like inherently dangerous to be, but they got stuff and sometimes you want that stuff. So this is where a lot of those morally gray decisions and uh, stuff like that mm-hmm. comes into be. Mm-hmm. Like that mechanic shop was the place I mentioned where I found a way to sneak around to the back of their shop, stole a bunch of stuff, and then sold it back to them. So stuff like that. These are the the types of places where you'll get into some of that gray and maybe even outright bad activity. It is also kind of interesting how the game, what it decides is and isn't theft, right? Because it puts, yeah. a, it puts a very heavy weight on theft. Like if you if you go to um you know like if you go to steal something like it has a little different ui icon when you open Mm -hmm. you know when you open up the drawer and look at the loot inside it has this gigantic like bright red do not touch stamp on it Mm -hmm. um you know if you do it it is an event and literally everybody comments on it you know as we talked about so like it puts such a huge weight on you know on whether you're going to make the decision to steal or not but it's very interesting who you are allowed to steal from without having to wrestle with that. Because some of the armed groups, you can just walk in and take their stuff and the game won't say anything to you. Mm-hmm. You know, the who you are taking from is a, as important to the game as the fact that you've decided to do it. Mm-hmm. And there could be a, f- a few funny edge cases. Like, you know, there, 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 there were a few cases I stumbled into of like, you know, a random loot locker in the in the back of a building with uh you know that you you need a saw blade to get into because it's got some iron bars and you know everything else in the building is is robbery material but this one little loot box you know in the back perfectly fine (laughs) they also delineate um like you are allowed to dig around in the trash outside of somebody's house yeah but if you go in the house and start taking stuff then uh then there's going to be a problem for sure. Yeah, even even rubble inside of a lot of houses. Uh it doesn't count as stealing. It doesn't really seem to bother people because I did that, you know, in the hospital. I went 
shuffling through all the rubble. Mm-hmm. And that that didn't bother anybody. Yeah, maybe they just feel like you're helping them out. But maybe, I, yeah. when I was in the position where I would even consider stealing from inside of people's houses, I was in the position where that was, you know, it, the thing about going out at night too is you can't go to one place and then change your mind and go to another place. You only get yeah. to go to one place. And mm-hmm. your scavenging sessions are precious because you need that stuff. So there were a couple of times when I went out because I was desperate for supplies. Maybe it's a place I hadn't been before. I didn't know what's going on there. And I got there and realized like, oh, this is uh, this is not what I thought it would be. But I'm here. Like I can't go back home empty handed. So I got to do something, you know? That is, I only stole one time and that was why I did it. Uh, and like, this is the worst part is it wasn't even because I was like desperately, like super hard up. I like, like I didn't, I wasn't in like, I need a win mode. Right. Mm -hmm. It was, I had gone there for a completely different reason. I, you know, with completely different expectations, but I'd packed a saw blade in my back pocket just in case I needed to, Uh uh, just in case I needed it. And my plan a just didn't work. The res- you know, the resources I was expecting to get just weren't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there was literally nothing. I was going to be going home empty-handed. I was like, well, I I can't do that. You got to feed the engine. Something has to happen tonight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I ended up breaking into a place and I got a fair bit of loot. Yeah, you like you said, when you go out on scavenging, you can choose what you're going to take with you, um, and that counts toward your inventory too. So there's big risk reward with that. Like, yeah, maybe I don't want to bring a crowbar with me because it takes up an inventory slot. But if I find a place that only a crowbar can open, then I'm going to be glad that I brought that same with weapons, uh, too. Like I always had my characters take a knife with them just in case there is a combat system in the game. If you on the UI, you'll see a thing that says like unarmed. And then that's your, like your looting mode. And then if you click the knife, you'll go into the combat mode. And if you have the knife out and you click on a character, you go attack them. Uh, same with if you have a gun pulled. I never shot anybody. I did pull a knife on somebody one time, uh, but that is something I'll save for the spoiler section. little tease for later. Um, I did bring weapons. Uh, I will say that you should not take combat lightly no. in this game. This is not a game that's about combat when you're out. It should be a last resort. And even then, you should probably just hit that run to exit button. Yeah. My own little tease. I axe murdered exactly one person in this entire run. <laughs> okay. And it was an extremely flaily affair. Mm-hmm. It was very confusing. I don't understand like why it worked the way it worked. I technically won it. Pavel very nearly died. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took him a week, maybe two weeks to fully like recover with multiple bandages. It was mm-hmm. like, like it was very much like, like the decision to enter combat was a run defining moment with ramifications that lasted half my game. Yeah. I, I would say that's the same for my game too. Um, and the way you're describing it, Sounds a bit like if someone who has no combat experience decides that they're going to kill somebody. Yeah. (laughs) You don't know how to do it, and it's going to fuck you up for a while. You're probably going to get hurt in the scuffle. Mm -hmm. And this was with me getting the jump on them, too. Yeah, yeah, 
for sure. Uh, you know, I got the first hit in. I don't even want to imagine what would have happened if it was a straight up fight. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's revisit that in the spoiler section. Um, it sounds like you had an easier go of the playthrough than I did. Uh, I, I was struggling for a lot of it. I, the, the engine mm-hmm. stopped at certain points along the way. Uh, and that forced me into some decision-making, uh, yeah. but I'm excited to talk about how that went in the spoiler section. That's going to be good. Yeah, I I think it is. Uh, I think it's going to be very illuminating. Is there anything else about gameplay that we th- you think we should touch on before we do get into spoilers there? Not a ton. I think we've pretty much, uh, I think that we've covered a pretty good overview of all of this. I guess, you know, the, the, the one other thing about scavenging, you know, is that there are a lot of um, different, I, I guess, like merchants. Yeah. So it's very, it's very interesting. There is a lot of game world that I never saw. And I think most players never will. Like, for example, like there's mm-hmm. the one location that was like a literal military compound. You're not let into that military compound. You're a civilian. You can walk up to the front door and you can, you know, you can trade with the soldiers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could you could trade alcohol for a few bullets. But like you can also scroll and you could just see the entire map grayed out going for days and days and this military this huge military compound is like the biggest building in the game mm-hmm. and, and then you know when you go back to scavenge map it says oh you've seen like one percent of this map and that's just all you're ever gonna see yeah you know and i'm sure i'm sure there are players out there you know who have mastered the combat system figured out you know all the ways to mess with it uh you know and make it work in their favor and they've probably you know there's probably you know like the the vaunted military outpost clear run where their entire mission is just to clear this entire base and just slaughter everybody inside uh because that's how uh video gamers work yeah (laughs) but like i've never you know like i'm never gonna see that uh no, and I think no. I think it is very interesting though that they they put all the effort into doing this, right? Like they like you have all of these very large portions of the world that unless you are going to be like a flagrant lawbreaker and just like ignore all warnings and like walk into people's houses and fight them when they decide they have a problem with that, there mm-hmm. are large sections of this game that mostly are just gestured at like you can go there you can explore them they're fully fleshed out but you unless you have like unless you are very determined uh you are never going to be in those spaces yeah i think so like i'm looking at the the map screen right now and i would say there are 15 locations ish and i would say probably about five of them are like that like you just described where they are dangerous you cannot go inside under any circumstances, maybe you can stealth your way through it, but if people see you, they will shoot you on site. Mm-hmm. So for all intents and purposes, they don't exist. You can't go in there. Yep. And that map screen's always taunting you when you're picking your location. They're like, well, the military base has tons of food, tons of medicine, and tons of guns. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, I would like some of that. But yeah, you're right. A lot of it is kind of revisiting the same locations that you know are safe. Uh, or safe-ish that you at least know how to handle and just picking those clean. Oh, yeah. There were several places that it might take you four or five trips to to take everything, and I did that because it's the only safe place I could go. Yeah, and and you'd even get into places, you know, into situations where it'd be like, well, what I really need is X resource. Like, I really need food. There isn't any food here, 
but there's something here. And there isn't food anywhere else, so I'll go grab the something and hope that I can trade it for food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a bunch of other places that are like, maybe they're not hostile places, kind of like the hospital we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I, I could divide these places up into three groups. There's the hostile places. There are the occupied places. Like there's a church, for example, that's still yeah. operating. Um, the priest is still there. Uh, the hospital, places like that. And then there are the empty, abandoned. Maybe there's like a squatter or two in them. Those mm-hmm. types of places. You can go like try and loot out the church, but if you do that, like the church, the the church is helping people in the game. The hospital's helping people. If you choose to go loot there, then that like that hits you a little bit. You're doing a bad thing by doing yeah. that, as opposed to looting out the the shelled building where no one lives anymore. So we uh, will dive into all of those decisions that we made in the spoiler section. Before we get into spoilers, we always do uh, a little bit of wrap up and housekeeping here. So uh, Alex, in this section, we always answer the question, who would you recommend to play this war of mine? So, uh, you know, obviously we've kind of mentioned a few few times, uh, basically any journalist that has ever covered this game has labeled it quote unquote important. Uh, mm-hmm. with with a capital I uh, in that very specific way uh, that many games um, or, or pieces of art get labeled. It is absolutely true. And it, you know, if, if you're the sort of person that, you know, cares about, uh, you know, about culturally uh, important games, this is absolutely one of them and you should absolutely play it. Uh, you know, I also way back at the very start already mentioned, you know, Fans of 11-Bit's other work, you know, you like Frostpunk, you're eagerly looking forward to Frostpunk 2. There is more here, and you're definitely going to find something to enjoy in it. Yeah, I basically agree with everything you said there. So usually I take the easy part, but you took the easy part (laughs) that time. Good job. Uh, Thank God, because I didn't have anything else. Yeah, no, I I agree with everything you said there, that if the the pitch for this game, the, the, the quote, the fact that this game is, quote, important... And the pitch of it's important because it is helping you empathize with the civilian under siege, basically. If that sounds interesting to you, then I I think that this is an unqualified, like, go play this. You probably already own this. Like, it's been given away many times at this point. Mm -hmm. It goes on sale for $2 often. Uh, The developers want people to play this game. Maybe this would be a good way of wording it. You mentioned that it was in the in the humble bundle uh, or itch.io bundle for Ukraine. Yeah, My apologies. If you're the certain sort of person who bought the itch.io bundle for Ukraine, you're the sort of person who will enjoy this game. Yeah, that's that's a great way of playing, uh, of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess like I don't think we mentioned this in the gameplay section, but this is a survival game. It's one of those crafting loop, gather, craft, upgrade type loop games. Uh, and it's it's really good from that perspective too. Like I, I thought that the the balance of resources, the stuff that's available, the stuff that you need to make, but the way that they want you to feel 
while this is going on. They want you to feel the pressure. And I think that that's executed really, really well, too. Like from that purely mechanical gameplay perspective, I think it's quite good as well. It's also very unique in the way it handles those aspects because you know like we we mentioned how we struggled to really get any headway and like really explore the you know like the quote-unquote tech tree you know in this game for most survival games like this that is not the case you know for a lot of these other games they want you to start from nothing and they want that kind of more power fantasy feeling of you going from zero to hero and slowly you know amassing power until you're the richest baddest student the entire you know planet galaxy whatever you know sandbox you're in Mm -hmm. this one handles it a little bit differently in the sense that you're not you're not expected you're not mandated to you know make it to the very top tippy top of the tech tree you're not expected to build and see everything you are expected to pick your battles you know decide you know like all all of these different branches and all of these kind of like different like things you can upgrade they're effectively like different play styles you know like if you wanted to go back and do another run you might do one run making cigarettes you do another run you know making moonshine mm-hmm. you can't Unless you, unless you, you know, maybe, maybe if you're very experienced in the game and you really know what you're doing, you can, you can effectively build a facility that has all of these things. But on a first time run, there's no way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be shocked if somebody did it on their first time run without like having a walkthrough in their hand the entire time. So I think that it is a, you know, a very unique way um, of, of handling this kind of like, it, it's a very unique spin on this very common like set of mechanics yeah and frankly dude i am surprised at how far you got into these uh these upgrades and stuff like that too because like i said i was just scraping by for most of the game like the the highest i ever got again was that feeling of like if everyone just like slept tonight and didn't go out scavenging we would still be okay for one night that's about yeah. as comfortable as I got. Well, yeah. After the spoiler wall, you'll get to hear all my secrets of how I did it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> awesome. So uh, let's do our housekeeping before the spoiler wall. I think it's uh, it's obvious that both of us think very highly of this game and recommend it to a whole lot of people. Before I talk about myself, tell people about first five and uh, kind of give an intro to your channel and tell people where they can find you and what you're doing. Yeah, hey. Uh, so I run uh, the YouTube channel, First Five. Uh, it's sort of like a video game review channel, largely focused on kind of like smaller indies. Uh, but but every once in a while, when I find the right game, uh, you know, I will look at something bigger. Uh, kind of the connecting thread between everything is I specifically look uh, for shorter games. Um, the, this was kind of like a personal experience thing, you know, when, when we were all, you know, in high school and college, we had those hundreds and hundreds of hours to play, you know, whatever Assassin's Creed had come out that year or, you know, bang out the new World of Warcraft expansion or whatever. We don't have that time anymore, you know, like we're, we're, we're busy adults. We have other things to do, uh, in our lives, you know, the, you know, other hobbies, family, friends, there, there are just other things taking up that space. And, at the very least, I personally, you know, I I do not have time for those games. You know, Baldur's Gate 3, absolutely amazing game. Absolutely love it. Have not bought it yet. I love that it exists, but God knows where I'm going to find the 150 hours for it. <laughs> so I focus on smaller games instead that, you know, people that are busy in the same way that I am can 
actually enjoy and can, you know, like actually get something out of and, you know, like hopefully, you know, maybe see the credits too, but even, you know, not even necessarily that, but just like get a worthwhile experience out of, mm-hmm. even if you're really busy, you know, if you got kids, if you're doing a graduate, um, you know, you, uh, yeah, doing like a post-grad thing. So, so that's kind of like what I try to talk about. And at this point, you know, I've been doing it for so many years. I, I've come at it from a lot of different angles, uh, but that's kind of like the common through line. Yeah. The, I think the first video of yours that I found was you did a video about, and I forget which itch bundle it was, but you did a video about like, okay, so you now own 1500 games from this itch bundle. Here's some cool stuff to try. And then from there, like I said, I ended up playing Unsighted and Silicon Dreams because you covered those mm-hmm. on your channel. And I was like, that looks really cool. I will uh, wish list and hopefully buy that one day. And those two, I actually got a chance to, uh, to play. So, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And I think recently you, you actually did a game about these crafting type games. Yeah, actually, it was, uh, it was a really big project. Uh, it, was, it took like eight months to crank out somehow. I'm still not entirely Jesus. sure how I did it. <laughs> uh, so what I did is I made a video called the Time Strapped Gamer's Guide to Life Sims. Right, that's what it was. Uh, which uh, you mentioned you mentioned before that you play a lot of Stardew Valley because it is liquid cocaine to you. Uh, I had a very different experience with Stardew Valley, which is kind of what mm-hmm. set me down this path, where for a lot of reasons, I felt like it was a game that was constantly using my time inefficiently. And there, you know, and there were constant things that were needling me about that game. Where every, like, literally, it was a yearly pilgrimage. I would go back to this game. I'd be like, this game sounds amazing. There's so much that I love about this game. I absolutely want to love this game. And then I would play it for 30 hours, and I'd never want to look at it again. And then a year Mm -hmm. later, I would be back. (laughs) And so I eventually decided, you know what? I'm going to break the cycle. I'm just going to play as many games in the same genre as Stardew Valley as I can physically get my hands on. And I ended up playing, like, 15 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take down all my notes and figure out how do these, you know, how do these games change or improve on, you know, like kind of like the formula that Stardew Valley uh, and Story of Seasons kind of like pioneered. You know, where are all these other games taking it? And most importantly, have any of them made a version of it that a schmuck like me with only a couple hours a week can actually enjoy? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I found a ton of great ones. Um, it was it was actually an incredibly fruitful project. One thing that actually surprised me was I did end up enjoying Stardew Valley. Finally, hey, uh, I go. made it. I made it through. I filled out the uh, what do you call it, the community center. I had an absolutely wonderful time. It helped that I'd already played the game six times and I knew what I was doing. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I it was an absolutely delightful project to work on. Uh, I felt like I got uh, a ton of great insight into how like the genre itself works. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping in the future I could do it for like, you know, other genres that I can tackle. Like, you know, I've, I've been wanting to do it for like MOBAs for a really long time. Cause like mm. Le- League of Legends is like the ultimate, like, this is the game you're in for life. Yeah. But there are like, there are so many other, you know, uh, you know, like League of Legends and Dota are obviously like the super big ones, but like, there are so many other MOBAs out there that are not as time intensive uh, that will mm-hmm. not ask for your entire life that are not nearly as popular. Nobody's ever heard of, you know, it's a, it's kind of a great tragedy. One of them is literally come and gone 
in the time it took me to uh, make the first Time Strap Gamer's Guide video, uh, mm-hmm. there was one called, oh god, now I gotta actually look up the name, <laughs> Omega Strikers. It was absolutely oh. phenomenal game. Nice. Yeah, it is. It it takes all of the mechanics of like your normal MOBA, uh, and just makes you play a three v three soccer game. You put that on your top three games for the uh, for for my end of the year episode. That yes, and I I just recorded that like yesterday, and I, I remember seeing the name and being like, huh, never heard of that. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, it is an incredible, incredible game. In so much fun. Did not get the player base it needed. Announced that it, you know, it's done doing development. The servers will stay up, but nothing new is coming out. So game mm. shut down basically a month ago. It's an absolute tragedy. Uh, ah, I I love love that game to death. It is some of the best multiplayer fun I have had in years. Uh, I will miss it extremely dearly. Ah, uh, and I'm part of the problem. Reading it on the podcast and being like, <laughs> never heard of that. <laughs> well. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, I really like your channel. I, I've liked it for a long time now. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast because again, I, I I took a couple of games straight from your channel onto the podcast. Uh, so this has been awesome so far. And I'll put a link down in the show notes to your channel and then to a couple of my favorite videos uh, so people can easily check those out. And yeah, go check those out. It's good stuff. Uh, now I'm going to talk about myself for the next minute or so. So while I'm talking about myself, feel free to go clicking around, uh, on those YouTube links. So the best way to support this podcast, I think, uh, easiest way is if you're listening on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or podcast addict, you can go leave a five-star rating and, or a written review. If it allows it that way, when people search this war of mine, they will, uh, find this episode more often. That'd be a big help. You can also join the Discord server, come in and chat. If you played this war of mine and you listen to the spoiler section and want to talk about how your experience went, come in and talk. We have a great community in there. Um, It's a really good time. I'm very proud of uh, the group of people we have in there. If you want to support monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. Like I said, this game was the winner of a poll. And uh, every month I do a poll for what games I cover on the show. So if you want to join in, throw a couple bucks a month my way. Uh, It's a big help. It's much appreciated. Not expected, of course, but always appreciated. I also have another podcast because I'm a maniac. It's called a top three podcast. We do top three lists. That is with uh, my high school buddies. And it's uh, it's a good time. It is. uh, I promise you, it's not just four dudes drinking beer and shooting. (laughs) shit. It's, It's a structured show. Uh, I think it's a good time. It's called a top three podcast. With all that being said, Alex and I are going to take a break. And when we come back, it is full spoiler time for this war of mine. Okay, Alex and I are back, and it's full spoiler time for This War of Mine. And even though I think that different people's playthroughs can play out in kind of different ways, you'll certainly have different things happen to different characters. If you don't want to be spoiled, please leave, go play the game, and come back. We will be here when you return. So, uh, Alex, you mentioned earlier you did one and a half runs. 
tell me about that half run. Tell me where things went wrong. So, uh, where things went wrong is immediately. <laughs> immediately. Okay. <laughs> uh, the reason why things went so well the second time around and I was able to actually accomplish something is because I had a dry run where everybody died horribly. Holy shit. Okay. So, I, I had gotten in and things immediately went downhill. It was like day five, the weather already started turning and it started getting colder. Oh, shit. And I did not know how heaters worked yet. So I just like mm. threw one piece of wood in, you know, a day. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll take care of it. Sure, whatever. People were getting sick constantly all the time. So they were also constantly in bed, not doing things. You know, right. um, I hadn't figured out that you could just sleep off your tiredness during the day yet. So I only, you know, I didn't have all hands on deck. I only had one person guarding. Mm -hmm. I focused very hard on sustainability and economy, you know, got to feed that engine. And I was trying to get the engine kickstarted. And then people just came and stole all my shit. I had... Uh, you know, like I, I focused really hard on boarding up the walls, but I only had the one guard and they didn't have enough equipment. So every time robbers showed up literally every other day, starting like day four, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and so like every other day, uh, they were breaking in and everybody that was in the building got injured. So two people were getting injured every time. And when you get injured, it goes to the next tier. So I had people that were still working off being slightly injured, get it, and then they'd break in and rob me again, and now they're very injured. Mm. So I was already sitting there, day nine, poor, <laughs> poor Bruno was on death's door, he was moderately injured and severely sick, everybody Jeez. else... <laughs> Everybody else was fully injured. There was no food in the larder. Uh, I basically had nothing. Uh, you know, Pavel had gotten injured going out scavenging on uh, a location called, uh, like, Sniper or something or another. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it wasn't like Sniper Alley, but it was something like that, right? And it had this little sniping minigame where you had to, like, time running between, like, objects to stay out of sniper fire and i messed it up because i got impatient so pavel got sniped so he oh, was man. injured too <laughs> uh and, and right around that point i was like all right we're we are we are steep into a death spiral we're just gonna start this over uh and, and call that a dry run wow okay yeah it was brutal so for for a little bit of comparison uh in my playthrough the weather got cold on day like 24 or something like that yeah, like well i think it was like the run i think it was like day 2021 20, on my second run i had so much okay. more time to prepare yeah and then the uh there's a certain point in the game when they really turn the screws on uh burglars and that was after the winter in my game mm -hmm. uh but yeah and also that that sniper alley or whatever it's actually called was not in my game not a not a, a yeah. so that it makes was, me think that like they'll have bespoke locations like not randomly generated locations but not everything will be in everyone's game yeah so i sniper alley was repurposed as a different thing in my second run okay um so it, in my second run it was the marketplace you know where you showed up and oh, there were like four yeah. yeah exact same map just a different scenario 
okay. and it seemed like every location in the game had like at least two scenarios attached to it. That's smart. Yeah, because there there were other locations like the supermarket where I had entirely different encounters. Both of the supermarket encounters were some of the more memorable ones I had. I uh, I had one of my more memorable encounters in one of the supermarkets as well. Uh, this was where my only character died, and it was uh, Pavla. He got fucking oh, no. murdered in the supermarket. Oh no! Did you have a Did you have a character die in your successful run? No, I did not. I managed to keep them all alive. It, it was okay. close a few times, though. Uh, Pavel got shot an inch within an inch of his life on multiple occasions. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. In, so what happened in this uh, scenario for me was in the grocery store, there was an unarmed woman in there who was being terrorized by a very mm. armed yes. man. Yes. And I thought, he doesn't see me. And so it has this thing where if you're pressed up against a door, you can look through the peephole. But if you have the knife in your hand, it will also give you a thing to click on to go what I thought meant go do a stealth kill because I'm a fucking gamer. I know mm-hmm. how to, I know how this shit works. Yeah. But as soon as I opened the door, he heard the door open and just shot him right in the head. Instantly <sighs> killed him. So this was when I committed the axe murder this scenario okay in the supermarket it was that guy it was that guy um i instead of a knife i had a hatchet Uh uh-huh and what ended up happening is i he so like the the way it's plotted out like it is set up perfectly to tell the player like there are so many flags like hey step in and murder this guy yeah you know like they've got you know like they you've got the moral high ground because this guy is trying to assault you know a defenseless woman Mm mm-hmm his back is to you you are like five feet away from this man yeah you know and you're staring at him you have the perfect opportunity to jump him and i was like i was really on the fence and i was really nervous and then there was there is a point where like you know like the stage direction he starts stepping away from the door uh Mm -hmm. towards the woman and i was like my moment is slipping away i need to make the choice right now uh Mm -hmm. and i dove in and I got the jump on him. I got the first hit in the back of his head with the hatchet and it dropped into like a sliver of life left, but he was still up. Mm. And he, the worst part is he got knocked super far away too. So I had to go chase him to hit him again. Mm. And the way the combat works, the game just gives you a button that says, Hey, click here and your guy will like, you know, go run and attack the guy. And so I did that. And he just fucking decked me with his rifle. You know, like he, he just smacked me with the butt of it. <laughs> and so but i was like well i can't run because he's just gonna shoot me he has a literal assault rifle so mm-hmm. i just kept charging him over and over again and every time i charged him he just smacked me with the butt of his gun until the fourth time when pavel was you know beaten within an inch of his life he finally closed in and he got the hit and he took the guy mm. down and it was so uh it was it was so huge for my run because well one i got an assault rifle with like 30 bullets ooh, and that was really good for keeping robbers out <laughs> oh yeah of course i never actually used the thing out scavenging but it came very handy uh towards the end game when they put the screws on and they bring in like the real heavy duty robbers okay Yeah, I was going to ask you if you ever used a gun. I never shot somebody, but I did basically use all my bullets for home defense. Uh, Also, 
just to add insult to injury, the night that Pavel got killed in the supermarket, uh, people broke into my house and stole all of my food. Oh. So it was it was a bad night. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, no kidding. So when you finished this run, you had four people. Is that right? Yes, I had four people. Yeah. Did you? Because I had uh, four days after Pavel got murdered, I had Boris come to the door and uh, and want to join us. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was like a oh well, you just had someone get killed. We're going to give you a replacement person now, but turns out someone might show up regardless. Yeah. Did you consider at all sending them away because having four mouths to feed is a lot in this game? You know, it is a lot, but I didn't really consider it. You know, I was in a comfortable-ish place and I was like, well, with the way I'm rationing, this actually still works, right? Because I mentioned before that I, I, you know, had a very strict rationing program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And before, when it was just the three of them, it was round robin. You know, and just one person didn't eat each day and it would just rotate who didn't eat Mm -hmm. and the other two people would eat. And when the fourth person came, I went, well, just two people won't eat. And it was the exact same, you know, um, pull on resources. I was still only cooking two meals a day. It's just two people didn't eat. Yeah, I figured that out pretty late in the run where um, basically people can survive if they're hungry and they can they can just persistently be on that hungry status and everything's fine, uh, except they're hungry. It just took me a long time to internalize that that was the right way to proceed, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that was one of those ways where, you know, the game was a lot easier on my second run because, uh, you know, that was a lesson I figured out in the first one. Everybody, you know, I ran out of food, so I got to see what happened when people got a little hungry. And the answer was, oh, well, they can actually go a day without it. Uh, mm-hmm. And be perfectly fine. And I I know if I did not institute that rationing, it would have been way harder. Yeah. Uh, because whenever I was trading, I wasn't I wasn't usually trading for food. I was trading for components. Mm-hmm. I was always always desperate for more components uh, and wood. It, it did not matter what phase of the game it was. I desperately needed basic building materials, and they ran out like day five for me on my second run mm-hmm. because like you, you know the little like random events that you can hear about on the radio on my second run like literally day two i got an event where they were like oh you know people are you know looting all the you know all the scrap and anything they can find you know that's like vaguely useful and isn't bolted down and the effect of it was there are fewer comp- there's like fewer basic building materials on the map mm. they um you know from you know and it was at the very start so it just like it just ate them like locusts and i was constantly looking for more and the only place i could find them was traders and then after that on like day five or six i think i got another random event where they were like well there are no small animals left in the city uh we ate them all (laughs) so so your little animal traps that are supposed to be like the basic building block to self-sustenance or you know self-sustaining yeah those don't work anymore (laughs) Yeah. So that was why I ended up going in the direction I did, where I just built a trade empire, churning out as much alcohol as I could, like like three, four alcohol a day, going as hard as I could, and just trading for as many materials and a little bit of food, just enough to keep me going for the next three or four days. Mm. Yeah. That that was that was how I managed to survive and get through it. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I prioritized food a lot more, and that's probably because my people were eating relatively well for most of the game Mm -hmm. until the winter uh, when we started the rationing policy. And then once I realized that that actually wasn't a big deal, if people went from very hungry to hungry to very hungry to hungry, they were fine. Um, then it, it became a little bit easier. Of course, there's a bunch of other shit to manage during those particular portions of the, yeah. the playthrough. But at least I didn't have to worry about like trading everything for food. Yeah, for sure. That that was one of the biggest things uh, that helped me because if I if I didn't do that, all of those resources that I was trading for all of these materials to try and keep the engine running and try and you know keep keep the uh, keep my base progressing in the right direction, you know, uh, and keep improving it, all of that those resources would have had to go into food if I hadn't done all that rationing from the start, and I would have been way more impoverished. Yeah. So there's also those events where people come and ask you for stuff or ask you to join them on stuff. I get Mm -hmm. the sense that you basically just said yes to anyone who needed help. Most of them. Yeah. The only, the only one I didn't was the, so there, there's the, it was the very first one I got, uh, both runs actually. Uh, and I imagine maybe you would have, uh, you would have as well, because I think I remember you mentioning them, the two little kids that come asking you for medicine. Right. And then later, later they, you know, a couple days later, they're like, Hey, we need more help. Can you bring us food? Mm-hmm. And I just physically did not have the food to give them, uh, gotcha. which, which was a little bit crushing. Uh, but I think that was like the only one I didn't say yes to. Gotcha. Yeah. I basically said yes to everybody including the kids both times I had the stuff they needed, but it's always like I gave them the last of my medicine, mm-hmm. which hurts because I didn't give my people medicine often. I chose to have them rest for like five days in a row to get well. Yeah. But that, that medicine is like the ultimate bargaining chip. Like I can buy really so much is. shit with a bottle really of medicine. Is. You know, medicine was kind of like, Kind of like my Final Fantasy Ether, right? Like you get one, yeah. you're like, oh, what if I need it in the end game? And you stash it in your back pocket and never, literally never use it because it's too valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a lot of people get sick because I still, you know, part part way into after the weather turned, it took me, a, I still hadn't figured out how heaters worked. And I eventually, you know, after people got sick enough times, I was like, I had to Google it and be like, I keep putting wood in my heater. Why isn't it working? How do? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah so like when when that was happening and people kept getting sick i just used like the herbal medicine instead and prayed you know or you know if it was amelia who didn't really do a whole ton once she got there other than you know (laughs) be an extra body to guard the you know i (laughs) just let her sleep it off yeah i was gonna say well she's being a lawyer too let's let's uh let's give her some credit she's Mm -hmm. lawyering during the uh the war here with the uh, the armed robbers that come to the house, she's she'll let them know exactly what part of the revised code says they can't. Yeah, be here she right now. she will explain to them the hold your ground law. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you also have people that come and ask you to join some uh, unsavory activities. Did you do any of those? I was not asked to do any unsavory activities. Okay, so I had two. Okay, uh, the first one was. Uh, Some people asked me to join a raiding party on a rich neighborhood, uh, which I did because I really needed stuff. 
And the second one was uh, to raid a hospital warehouse uh, for bandages and medicine, which I did because I really needed that stuff. Uh, And also I kind of misread that. I thought they were stealing from like the army, Mm -hmm. but it was not. It was the civilian hospital that they stole. Because when when Bruno got home from that, everyone was like, man, what the fuck? Like... (laughs) (laughs) And then I was I like, know. oh, okay, it was that kind of hospital. I see. Yeah. yeah, no, I didn't get those. I got all requests for help. Um, I okay. got the I got the two kids. I got a single mother who wanted help boarding up her house. Mm-hmm. I got a guy whose brother had been shot by a sniper and needed help getting them home. And then I had I had the guys that brought by carrots, uh, and then they like came back yeah. later asking. Yeah, and then they came back later also asking for help boarding up their home. There were a lot of people that wanted me to board up their homes, despite the fact yeah. that I have my characters had zero experience in doing that before the war. But you know, right? I think the only other one that I had was a house that got bombed, and there was like someone stuck in the rubble. And they needed help oh, getting people yeah. out. Okay, yeah. yeah, I didn't get that one. Um, but those are, especially when you have three people, those are low cost, like very, yeah. Not, when you sent people out to go do that kind of thing, to help board up someone's house, like nothing bad ever happened on those. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that would happen is they come home tired. I did actually have one night where I got somebody tried to rob me the same night. Okay. But like by that point, I had four, pe- four people. So I still had a double guard and everything. So it was like literally not even a problem. Right. That you could you could not have enough guards. That's true. I was thinking yeah. like, you know, I'm gonna send someone out to clear rubble and they're gonna fucking break their leg or something. Mm-hmm. But none of that ever happened. Yeah, no. I was gonna say especially with okay, my my gamer brain turned on when the guys showed up with like the with the vegetables because let me tell you, vegetables are one of the most expensive things in this game. Like it's medicine and then it's vegetables, pretty much. Mm. Actually, no, it might be it might be medicine and then canned food and then vegetables. But it's, you know, like it's up there. Yeah. (laughs) And these guys just show up with five vegetables, no strings attached. Just like, hey, we're a nice neighbor. We just want to be nice. Have some vegetables. It's like, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like my my gamer brain turned on. and I was like, this game is going to giveth and it is going to taketh away in equal measure. And in mm-hmm. five days, they are going to come knocking on my door asking for, like, three medicine or something absolutely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And then, like, four days later, sure enough, they came back and they're like, hey, can you help us board up our house? We just need you for the evening. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, really? I definitely had those same. I definitely had those same feelings, too. Like, especially with the people that came. Basically, most of those requests where they come or they, you know, they just give you free shit. Why would anyone be mm-hmm. giving me free stuff? Uh, or, you know, one of those was like, come join our raiding party. And then I was expecting them to, you know, like they're actually evil and they're going to kidnap the person or something like yeah. that. But that stuff didn't happen. And that's part of what I talked about in the non-spoiler part. Like there are just random acts of kindness throughout are, the game yeah. that they really hit home even more because you're surrounded by a lot of other like desperate stuff. Like killing someone with a hatchet or uh, mm-hmm. my character getting murdered in the supermarket or the bad things that I haven't mentioned yet that I did. Uh, all those random acts of kindness, I think are like really crucial for the experience in here because like 
like I think I said in the non-spoiler part, in all of these, any story you hear about survivors in a war zone or something like their stories are always full of, you know, good Samaritans helping out as well. Yeah. And there are also a surprising number, like almost equal number of events where somebody terrifying, you know, like somebody heavily armed, somebody that like, you know, is described as like, you know, like, like not a good dude Mm -hmm. proves themselves to actually be pretty chill. Like uh, the the other event I had at the supermarket. Uh, so the other version of the supermarket, and this was the one in um, in my first run, mm-hmm. is instead of the military guy being there, there they say that oh there are other scavengers here, so you're gonna have to share, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like the event. I looked at that. I looked at that description. I was like, okay, sure, yeah, fine, I'm fine with that. And I walk on. And in the exact same place where there was that one soldier, there are three men with assault rifles. And I, you walk <laughs> on it to set the stage for everybody else. The front door is five feet away from where you come onto the map. There is zero cover. There is nowhere to hide. You either turn around and leave immediately or you, or you, you gamble and you see how this is going to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, there is no way to evade these guys. And so, like, I'm just forced to sit there and stand and stare as I as two of them go inside. The other guy turns around, immediately spots me and just slowly walks towards me. And, you know, and I have my, you know, like my heart is in my mouth for this entire sequence as I'm just standing there <laughs> waiting to see what's going to happen and if I need to bolt. And he walks up within five feet of me, looks at me for like three seconds and goes, yeah, you're all right. There's enough for everybody. Go on in. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. Unexpected. Absolutely. Okay, so I already talked about my kind of rationalizing to myself about stealing medicine from the hospital. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to steal all of it. I'm just going to steal a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, I did that. Things started to get desperate for me in the winter time, Um, day 20 ish. uh, The radio said it's about to get colder. And I guess, no, I'll save that because it hits harder later. Um, The weather gets really cold. And this is what I was talking about. It was all hands on deck, food and fuel and literally nothing else. I had no time or energy or resources for anything. It's literally like whatever you can carry, bring it home. We're burning it. And then food also. My people ate so much canned food in this. (laughs) Um, But it was. uh, Yeah. Yeah. That happened to me a lot, too, because I was, you know, because I mentioned I, I was building a moonshine empire moonshine takes water to make right and it takes filters to you know to purify the second version and you need those filters for more water and you need fuel for all three of these steps so on Mm -hmm. top of chucking all of this fuel into uh you know like the different furnaces and stuff to keep the place warm i had three different stations that i was feeding fuel into daily yeah it was you know there was a certain point where it just it, it was untenable and could not you know be done and that was, yeah. you know, when the when the engine stalled for me, 
Luckily, you know, it had stalled late enough that I could just, you know, walk through the rest of the game with what I had already gathered for the most part and still mostly kind of survive. Okay. But that one did lead to one of my most desperate moments where I also stole from the hospital, (laughs) Uh but I stole furniture. (laughs) Furniture. Okay. Yes. Uh, So the hatchet, in addition to being uh, a good weapon for killing people with, can be used to convert furniture into fuel and wood you can you can break it down back to its base components and i had already scrounged through all the barren areas this was also why i had um i had robbed the the one place that i said the one time i robbed was because i showed up to uh the one location that like one house was occupied by a bunch of like armed people trying to protect their house and the other half was like ruins and I had right. gone to the ruins with the hatchet and was like, all right, well, I'm just going to, you know, chop up whatever furniture is in the ruined half because I haven't done a sweep for that. There was no furniture, the, the entire building. I was like, oh, mm. well, hell, I'm freezing in two days. I need to get something out of this. Uh, so yeah. that's why I did that. You know, that's why I did my one robbery. And then uh, after that, I was still desperate for more fuel. So I went to the hospital. I found a quiet corner with a with a poor a poor little oak armchair to victimize, <laughs> uh, and dismantled it as quietly as I could. Which it it would have been hilarious how petty it was if I wasn't so desperate. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You're going in the hospital. It's like I'm not going to steal from the people. I'm not going to you know stick somebody up and try and steal that. You're not going to steal their medicine like I did. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to steal the visitor chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the desperation part for me was during the winter, one of my characters is like very sick, like will die soon if I don't find medicine. I don't have any medicine. I already stole from the hospital. I don't have any food and I don't have any wood for fuel. I have like literally people are going to die in a week if I don't fix this right now. So all the while uh this is on day like 25-ish um, because I did not prepare for winter because I didn't know that that was going to happen. Um, this is a few days into, maybe five days into the winter. Um, and I wrote in my notes here, like if I ever play this game again, prepare for winter ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So total desperation move. And the whole time when you go on the map screen to go out at night, up in the corner, there's this place called the Quiet Villa, which is where this old couple lives. And for the whole game, I had resisted going there because I don't want to go steal from the old couple. But like we said in the non-spoiler part, yep. you get to that point where there's very little useful stuff without doing something bad. Like oh, I've yeah. cleaned out all the empty places. I've cleaned out all the places where there are people, but they don't care that I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done all that. Uh, I don't have anything to trade. So I go up to the old people's house. Uh, I stole one thing of medicine from them. Uh, the old woman who lives there is sick. So they are like begging me not to steal their medicine. Yeah. I didn't steal all of it. I stole less than half. And I also just stole, you know, like I said, all the wood in their house took all that shit. So that felt really bad. And my characters were not happy about that, uh, that, that uh, Boris did that. But my people got to survive because of the things I took from their house and I was able to sell and then burn for fuel and all of that. Bruno recovered. He survived. 
Um, and then he went on the hospital raid like a week later. Uh, so yeah, we're just, <laughs> we're paying all the bad behavior forward <laughs> now. Um, yeah. So that was the one really just like evil thing that I did because my people would have died if I didn't do that. And the other options were like, what am I going to go try and steal from the militia that's in the, these apartments? I can't, I can't yeah, go. Like, I've already like, seen are you, how are you just going to get in the shootout with literally all of them? Like what? What's yeah, exactly. Your plan here? And I've, I've already seen how combat plays out in this game from my character mm-hmm. getting just demolished that one time. This is the point for me. Things are super desperate. And then on the radio, uh, they say the peacemakers are coming in two weeks. They said, uh, and it actually ended up being a little over two weeks for me. Uh, but they got the message. So that's like a little spark of hope that mm-hmm. the end is on it. If I can just keep it yeah, rolling for another keep, couple yeah, of weeks. Hold out for a little longer. Yeah. And this, the other part I wanted to mention, I'm in this super desperation mode and I check the weather uh, on the radio and the weather channel says, uh, keep in mind, it is like four degrees Celsius in my house. Like I'm, I'm burning, I'm rationing the fuel too. Oh God. Just making sure it doesn't freeze in there. And the weather says, we may expect the upcoming days to be quite cool. One of our listeners suggests there's nothing better than a cup of hot mulled wine on a cool <laughs> day. Enjoy. And I read that and I was like, you motherfuckers. Oh my God. For me, for me, it was the one when they were, when they said winter is coming and they were like, let's all give the people of Pogorov a nice warm hug. It's like, yeah. Th- thanks for your thoughts and prayers. God damn it. There's another one that says, uh, Oh, it's snowing outside. Make sure to cool up or curl up in an armchair with your favorite book. And yeah. I was like, God, I just robbed an old couple of their medicine. <laughs> this is what the radio is telling me. Uh, yeah. I thought that this was um, a really interesting just way of flipping the script on like people like you and me who see these wartime things from the comfort and safety of our own home and yeah. just kind of like are just not, obviously, how could we be in touch with how things really are? But like a two two ways to look at this, like how people who are not in it, just they're living in their world and that's what matters to them. And if somebody in uh, fucking Gaza saw that the two of us were doing a podcast right now and talking about the quote um, struggles that we had throughout the game, they'd be like, you motherfuckers, you know? Yeah. That's how oh, I felt yeah. re- seeing this radio message. Yeah, one hundred percent. That is a really good point. Um, and I, obviously, I definitely felt a lot of uh, you know very similar frustration with that uh, with the Weather Channel. I mean, like uh, on the one hand, um, you know, it does kind of like match the tone and attitude of like Weather Channels, and like that maybe there is a little bit of commentary there, just because you know, like. Maybe not necessarily with, like, the larger journalistic organization, but, like, there are sections like, you know, the weather, where, you you know, your job is to be pleasant and to, uh, you know, not rock the boat. And Mm -hmm. they they don't want, you know, the weathermen going off script and talking about, oh, well, terrible, terrible weather in Pogorov, or, uh, you know. um, (laughs) Life fucking sucks in Pogorov. All right, on to sports. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's it's Pogorin, isn't it? Pogorin, yeah. Pogorin, yes. 
Um, yeah, the, the other way that I kind of saw this in credit to uh, Randall, again, as I mentioned before, who I sent the screenshot of this to him and he said like, yeah, it's interesting how um, that could be media just covering it up, you know? Yeah. I don't know whose radio station this is, basically. That is true. What, yeah. what do they want people to know? Yeah, and the difference in tone is very different because there are three different radio stations uh, in this game that you can tune into as, as well as a few like, you know, like little music stations. But like they all have very different tone. Like you've got the one like like very like neutral tone, like AP News sounding uh, station. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the weather station, which is infuriatingly chipper. Yeah. And and then you've got the local news station where I, I think the one quote from them that stood out for me most was like at the very end where they're like, it's not enough that there's war now. And now we have active gangs of looters on the streets, you know, like not mm-hmm. in those exact words, but that'd be like, good God, enough is enough. Yeah, I think the uh, the radio seemed like a simple thing when I was building it, because I think, I think when you first see like the option to build it, they say like, you you can see what's coming up on the weather and stuff like it. And it was like, yeah, sure, that seems like it might be useful. But I think it has like a really subtle but effective uh, story purpose as well. To And it gave me something to do during the day to get up and check the radio and yeah, yeah they some say point like of this, every day. Yeah, yeah. Cigarettes are in demand right now, and I don't have any cigarettes, so I can't really do anything about that. But you know, good to know, I suppose. Um, but it, a lot of this stuff, I think, like reinforces like some of those uh, themes that I think the game wants you to to take away from it in a really nice way. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I also remember, you know. Um, especially once we were, once, you know, the announcement goes out that you've got the, the peacekeepers on the way, you know, effectively like the UN stand in. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I was glued to that radio every single day for news and there was just nothing Yeah, for hours of game time. <laughs> yeah. And it, um, so it keeps a log of what had been said on that radio station in past days. So, uh, on day 28, they um, they said that the peacekeepers are on their way and it's going to take a couple weeks, they said. Yeah, day 28. So on day 42 or 43, I'm checking the radio and I'm like, where are the fucking, where is the UN? Like, what are they doing? When are they getting here? I got, te- I got 10 dudes with guns outside my door. Get them over yeah, here. Exactly. <laughs> They're raiding my house every single night. We're running out of food. Like, come on. Um, and it's, this is another thing I think they want to reinforce, like, if there is any sliver of hope to cling on to that you will cling on to any sliver of hope that you can yeah, find, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, when the cold weather passed, like when I turned on the radio and they were like, temperatures are looking up in the city, uh, and some other chipper message, why don't you go out and play a game of soccer or something like that? You know, um, <laughs> When the the cold broke, that was one of the two big like happy moments uh, in the it's game because winter was such sure. a struggle yeah. to get oh, through. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I, it's actually really interesting. I I happened to be glancing through, um, you know, like the 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 achievements uh, in the game, mm-hmm. and uh, of course they tell you, you know, like like with any other game on Steam, what percentage of people got each achievement. 
And, uh-huh. you know, like there, there is the usual attrition for, um, you know, people who, you know, just stop the game halfway. Right. Yeah. But it's very telling looking at these 22% of players survived winter. Uh huh. Somehow 22.2% survived the event after that. And 207 mm. have the achievement for beating the game. So it's like, if you make it through winter, you make it through the game. You're generally, you know, like, look at, you know, I get it. This is not perfectly empirical, but like ballpark, you can kind of look at it and say, if you can make it through winter, you've pretty much beaten the game. And you're, you know, yeah, the last hour or two is, a you know, mostly a victory lap. Yeah, it's a bit of extra pressure because right after the winter was when the uh, the raids started, like the. Every single night, people try to break yeah, in. Yeah, it was the same for me, too. So um, it, it was a little extra pressure of like, well, people are not sleeping at night ever anymore because someone has to go scavenge and then two people have to guard the house every single time. Uh, people still got hurt during those uh, home defenses from time to time. But the good part about that section is during the winter, another part that makes winter so hard is that a lot of the scavenging places are unavailable. And also sometimes just randomly, they'll be like, oh, you can't go to the market. There's people fighting there tonight, which is a nice touch, uh, game design touch. Sucked for anyone who wanted to do anything there. Yeah, getting snowed in was truly brutal for me um, because I I wanted to go out and do my hatchet plan. And I had literally one derelict I could go to everything mm-hmm. else was housed you know there there's like four or five you know locations that you could go to where nobody's there nobody cares what you're doing there or messing around i could go to literally one of them because everything else was snowed in and it's mm-hmm. like the end of winter got really desperate for me because my options were go to the nice old you know the nice old granny and grandpa um go go rob them or go deal with a gang like, those were basically the only options I had left. Mm-hmm. So I just, I went into the same gang apartment every single night and tried to sneak through it. And usually it didn't work out, but once or twice it did. <laughs> and okay. I swear to God, these these were the most patient gangsters I have ever met. <laughs> uh, because uh, they didn't shoot me on sight. Okay. They, you know, you would walk in and they'd be like, hey, what are you doing here? Get the hell out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd slowly back out. I'd go outside the door. I'd be like, okay, I left. And they're like, all right, cool. I'm glad I'm glad we have an understanding. Right, yeah. And then I, they turn around and I'd walk right back in. And they catch me again. They're like, hey, I thought we told you to get the fuck out of here. I'm like, okay, yeah. okay, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until the third time that they'd actually draw their guns on me. And then I could come back the mm. next night and do it all over again. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But I do have one really memorable uh moment from one of the times i went in there it was just like this random casual you know like dialogue that was thrown out there Mm -hmm. where i was staring at one of the guards through the front door waiting for him to leave and he just casually went you know that house across the street looks really rich we should go raid that house like motherfucker Mm -hmm. i'm the house across the street i'm raiding you (laughs) (laughs) like through the pure happenstance of where it sat you know like on the map because it was um it was mm. uh, the, the like, apartment complex that was, like, practically across the street from where I was. You know, like, on the map, oh, yeah. it's, like, your okay. hovel, and then there's, like, the garage right next to you, and then, like, across, like, the road is this apartment complex. You know, 
thinking about it, like if anyone saw what was in my house, they would probably feel that way. Like they're like, this motherfucker's got two heaters. He's got two beds. <laughs> yeah. He's got, and uh, he's got a, a gardening project that he abandoned like three weeks ago, but it's there. He's got everything boarded up. There's an armchair in there. That oh, should the just be our armchair. Yeah, exactly. I think I will take it. The final like memorable kind of emergent thing that happened for me was that I had robbed the old couple of some, some, not Mm -hmm. all, some of their medicine uh, to keep Bruno alive. And I did debate before I did that. I did have that conversation with myself where I was like, well, if Bruno died, that's one less mouth to feed. He can't carry a bunch. At least it's not, uh, what's her face, Katya, because she's good at bartering. At least mm-hmm. it's not her. So I did go through that in my head. But uh, yeah, I did I did steal from them to keep him alive. So late in the game, uh, this is night 44, I went back to their house just to see. Yeah. I wasn't planning on stealing from them. I just wanted to see how it played out. And they were dead. They died oh. in bed together. Oh. Yeah. So... I don't know if it was the winter, but I know that I didn't help the situation. So that was one fine. And then like the day after they get on the radio and say the peacekeeping forces are on their way, literally the day after. So <sighs> that is a really compelling ending though. Yeah. It, but, but you know, I, I didn't like, it is exactly two weeks after they were said the peacekeepers would be there in two weeks. They were not there. So I was like, fuck, do I, are they going to be late? Like, that would be really, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cruel, but this is a cruel game. So yeah. I thought to myself, okay, well, um, I'll go up there and check, see if they survived. Uh, like I said, they died in bed together. You can see their dead bodies in the bed together. Um, so that sucked. And then uh, I thought, well, they're dead. I'm taking everything in their house. And then I did that. <laughs> I went back yeah, to my I house. Mean, it's it's not doing them any good anymore. Um, exactly. <laughs> but the whole time I'm cleaning out their refrigerator, I'm thinking like, yeah, well, you remember how you stole their medicine, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and then literally the next day, uh, the radio says the peacekeepers are on their way. So I'm like, ah, of course, of course. Yeah, I was going to say the other one uh, or one other one that was really memorable for me was uh, when I was on my um my chair hatcheting adventure in the hospital uh-huh <laughs> um i had come back it was like the, the second or third time i'd been there and they said that they had gotten shelled again <laughs> mm. and that was you know that was uh you know the moment where you know it you know it really punched through i was like oh god um that that was the moment when i was really starting to think about you know like Kind of some of the stuff that I've been, you know, reading in the news about Palestine and stuff with, uh, like yeah. that. I was like, you could actually, I re- I remember there, like way up in the corner of the hospital, you could still see like a bomb sitting there. 
like inactive just they mm. just like never detonated uh you know they're they're doing all this operating in a hospital with an active mortar shell in it <laughs> yeah uh which is all kinds of grim to think about <sighs> oh yeah a lot of really grim situations uh, that you find yourself in, even if you're not stealing from the uh, the sick old couple like I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're doing a little petty, uh, like you said, chair destruction and theft. <laughs> it's about as harmless as you can do in this game. Do you happen to know what day your ceasefire happened on? Uh, it happened on day 46. Oh, okay, same for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to say anything in the non-spoiler part, I don't know if this varies from playthrough to playthrough, but it is odd that it was the same day for both of us. I think it does, because it sounds like my second run had a very similar rhythm to yours. Uh-huh. Uh, and my first run very much did not. Uh, right. You know, like, like I got that first weather notification that like, oh, it's starting to get a little bit colder, you know, better get in your armchair, day five. <laughs> Which means, you know, winter was coming day 20, maybe, at best. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that it can vary a little bit. Okay. Starting to see the strings kind of a little bit like are there a dozen playthroughs mm-hmm. basically where they say okay winter happens on this day, the ceasefire happens on this day, yeah. yada yada yada, but it will happen the same days for everybody. I do know that you can make like a custom game where you can like adjust all of those parameters because that is, you yeah. know, like something I saw and I think like the maximum parameter is you can have it go up to 80 days or something like that, which, you know, knowing, knowing how barren my map was after 15, how? Yeah, that's sicko shit right there. Yeah, that takes a much more knowledgeable player uh, than I am uh, to, to pull off that amount of time. Uh, I would mm-hmm. I would be starving desperately long before that. Uh, you know, even without winter or all those other things, I just run out of things. Yeah. There's just not enough stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Unless like you can, you can, I think if you plan, maybe you can build like a nice self-sustaining thing, but there's always something to like throw a wrench in your plans. Like I had, I had a small scale moonshine operation. Like I was making stuff. Every day, every two days, I would get a bottle and I could sell it for some food or something like that. But then in the winter, I can't collect rainwater because it's all frozen. Mm-hmm. I have to go do, I have to go outside and get snow. And then I need to use fuel to melt the snow to get water. Use fuel to make the moonshine too. It's, and then you need more fuel. Yeah. This was the exact problem I ran into. Yeah. That's what drove me to the old people's house because I had no food, no fuel, and no basically nothing i had like some screws Mm. that's about all i had in the house so yeah it's it's interesting how it sounds like our successful playthroughs were on the same kind of track Mm -hmm. but we had very different experiences within that same track oh yeah there was one more desperate moment for me uh okay during during the uh when when the looters got really intense Mm mm-hmm uh, so I mentioned uh, way back earlier in the non-spoiler section that there was an upgrade that I spent a week hunting for, right? Yeah. I needed four electrical parts. Four. Two. Uh-huh. I had literally everything I needed to get like the tier three machining table mm-hmm. because I wanted the ability to manufacture bullets. 
because I had like 20 bullet casings and like all the things I needed to make bullets lying around and I couldn't do anything with them. And I was completely out of resources to make moonshine. Like there was just no sugar left on the map, period. The only, Mm -hmm. the only sugar I was getting was going to be from trading. And so I was like, well, this business venture is drying up. I better switch over to bullets. Is what it, is what <laughs> what first set me down this path because I was like, well, you know, I've got like thirty of them stored. I don't really need more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the raiders started coming every night, and I started using five or six bullets every night, and I suddenly realized, oh shit, I am going to need more than thirty bullets. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> And luckily I had already, you know, started my quest for this. I went to so many places. I went to like three different traders. I, you know, I waited for the main trader guy to show up. He didn't have any. I went to, you know, I went to every derelict I could because the snows eventually went away. And so I could go to all of them. I couldn't find any. Eventually I went Mm. to the garage and I managed to get two. (laughs) I was like, well, this helps, but it's not as everything I'd need. And then I went fishing around because apparently I'd left some rubble. And in the rubble on top of the garage, I found the last two. I had not been there since like day eight, day six, very early in the game. Because I had gone through mm-hmm. all the rubble and been like, electrical parts, I don't need those. I need components. Because mm-hmm. I was still making, you know, I was still making all the basic stuff. So it's like electrical parts. These are freaking useless. I don't have inventory space for this. I just left it in the rubble. Uh, and th- those two electrical parts ended up saving my life uh, because I would have run out of bullets on day 44 if I hadn't found those parts. Ooh. And because I did, I was able to make like another 20 bullets and I was perfectly fine. Nice. And yeah, it w- it was just like an incredibly desperate uh, and frustrating struggle because I knew I'm like, okay, the peacekeepers are going to be here soon. Winter's already over, so I'm safe. This is the final hurdle. This is all I need to deal with. I just need like ten more bullets to beat the game, or or four electrical components, a somewhat you know kind of common thing, and then I'm I'm in the clear. Mm-hmm. And I just for the longest time could not find them anywhere (laughs) and all of the trips that you're taking to look for electrical components could have been spent doing other stuff which absolutely makes it hurt worse when you come up empty yeah 100 percent. i sold every single electrical component i picked up (laughs) uh, beyond the if you needed them to build any of the level one things then i used those but other than that i sold all of them I sold every bullet casing and gunpowder that I picked up. I think it was the I experience with uh, with my character getting killed, where I was just like, eh, "Violence is uh, is not going to be kind to me if I go seeking it out." So bullets are v- more valuable to other people than they are to me. So I'll trade them for food. Uh, later, I did get a pistol from somewhere, and I I did have like a bunch of bullets banked up, and that helped when those. Uh, those nightly raids happened for sure. But I also had like a knife and stuff. So, so people were semi armed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, yeah, that's like the last test. I I wonder, I I just, I I wonder, I don't know if you were holding anything back during the non-spoiler part. Like I wonder like 
what does it take in each of these conditions for someone to actually die? Like, do they go from injured to severely injured to dead? I'm pretty so I'm pretty sure what the way it is is it goes from hungry slash injured slash sick slash sad, and then it goes more injured, more sick, or, or no, it's like slightly sick, slightly injured, sad, and then right. it goes slightly hungry uh, or no then it goes uh like moderately hungry depressed you know moderately injured and then it goes severe and i'm pretty sure after that it is just dead well not sleeping for several days in a row will kill you so yeah uh that probably does hunger probably yeah because whenever you get somebody to like severe blank they're like oh buddy you better fix this like right now or they're gonna die you know, like the you get all the little warning flags, um, you know, in, in all the different survivors' bios as they start worrying about each other. Okay, so I just looked it up. Um, it goes from well-fed to uh, normal state, and then there are two levels of hunger. There are two levels of very hungry. There are two levels of starving. And then if they don't eat for seven days or two days at starving, they go to extremely starving and if they don't eat, they'll die on the next day. So according to the wiki. Wow, that is... That, that's more levels than surpri- I expected. Yeah, surprisingly long tail. When I, whenever I saw that somebody was very hungry, I just assumed I had like a day to fix the problem. <laughs> yeah. So wounded is a lot less forgiving. Uh, sick is a lot less forgiving. Um, but it, the wiki says that they move slower than hunger. So maybe someone can be sick for a longer time. Uh, basically definitely they can be injured and i bet temperature has a lot to do with it as well because like you know you can get sick if it is too cold i bet you it's also harder to recover without like meds or anything if uh you know it isn't warm yeah i know both times that pavel got shot he was severely wounded and both times it took him like two weeks and multiple bandages to yeah like sleep it off <laughs> sleep off your gunshot wound yeah come on man (laughs) and i just looked up uh because we wondered about the depressed state um so it it does go from normal to sad to depressed and then there's a final one called broken where the character will not do anything oh uh they will not build anything they'll not cook anything they can't go scavenge and they can't guard at night um, and the only way to cheer them up is uh, a bunch of sleep, uh, drinking, uh, or having another character console them. Hmm. Uh, and they, it's a, the wiki says they won't eat unless another character basically feeds them. Oh, wow. So that is, dark, I never yeah. got into that. Yeah, I never did either. So I guess just to kind of wrap this up, I think, um, like now that we're in the spoiler section, people have either played the game or they don't care what they hear here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's safe to say that this game is actually easier than you think it is when you're playing, as yeah. long as you're not like totally blindsided by the winter coming on day five or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it seems like it is really like oppressive and stuff toward you as the player but it's actually friendlier than you expect it to be. Like I thought that if like, for example, someone is very sick, like Bruno was, he was very sick for one day. 
I thought he was just going to die if I didn't get medicine that night. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. And it doesn't seem like that's the case kind of across the board. They do a good job of hiding it. For sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, also with like other stuff, like, you know, like with that little trick where, you know, you can you feed yourself every other day instead of every day. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not very logical that you can, you know, get through two days uh, with just a single can of tuna and be fine. Uh, But, you know, it it is, uh, you know, one of the very gamey ways where, you know, this war of mine make is a little kinder to you than it really needs or, you know, well, yeah, than it really needs to be uh, because, yeah, I I think there's an alternate version of this where the, the food requirements are much more severe. And everybody just shrugs and nods and goes, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's how much you need to eat, you know, normally. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you imagine if instead of one, you know, like you said, can of tuna per day, if they were like, uh, your characters need to eat 1500 calories, uh, you know, like that, that would be brutal. We'd all be, they'd all be dead in a week. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The game is friendlier than it needs to be, but the the illusion is kept up well enough for everybody playing it uh, unless you really get in a bad spot and you realize that your characters are not dying as soon mm. as you thought they would. At least for me, the illusion was kept up. It did not adversely affect my experience at all. I think I felt what they wanted me to feel. Yeah. I I think the illusion was kept up very well uh, for me as well. And I think that if I hadn't had that first run go so disastrously, right, Mm -hmm. I would have probably been in many of the same dire straits that you were. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because that gave me, you know, the the game is very specific about one, you know, like telling you go figure it out yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. with, With like this, this is not a game that has like a tutorial message that pops up anytime you build a new thing. You get a few vague descriptions for just about everything in the game, but none of it is perfect information. And a lot of the time, it's not always uh, helpful, even. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then there's other stuff that just straight up is not explained at all. uh, And you just kind of have to intuit it. Yeah. And so, you know, like knowledge in the game is a real advantage. And like a lot of games in this style, like it's very common for games like this to have a dry run where, you know, you, you just die. You yeah. just, you just yeah. eat shit the first time. Uh, <laughs> and then you, you take the lessons from that and you have a better start the second run. Uh, and you, you know, you actually get somewhere. And that was more or less how this war of mine was for me. But I think that it maybe is not the way that developers want it to necessarily be i think they want you to go in and make those unforced errors so that you get into having to make those difficult decisions about you know whether you whether you go rob an elderly couple and mostly directly cause their death yeah i i think that of the two of us i think they would they would prefer that people have my playthrough i think so i I think you're right frostpunk is the game where i just ate shit the first time i played it I absolutely did too. Yeah, and if I ever replay that game, I you bet your ass I'm going to watch some like how to survive the first, you know, couple weeks in Frostpunk videos just to make sure I can, you know, at least start strong uh, yeah. and see where it goes. But th- this is this game I think is a lot friendlier than Frostpunk. 
No, honestly, I had an identical experience with these two games. Okay. Uh, because I had the I had the exact same experience with Frostpunk, where I made it about halfway through the game before I just ate shit and just could not keep up with the winter getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, <laughs> and it was largely because I had made, you know, like, poor decisions based on not really understanding exactly how the system works and not prioritizing mm-hmm. the right thing at the beginning. And both games, you know, have this, you know, the, the perpetual engine you got to keep feeding – and having that strong foundation is such a world of difference in both of these games. Uh, yeah. And so when I went back and I played played my second run in Frostpunk, I did so well that I didn't have to become a horrible dictator. I just didn't pass those laws, right? Because mm. uh, I had already, you know, seen enough of the mechanical systems that I had enough of an understanding of the game that I could beat it without having to resort to any any of the you know any of the moral quandaries interesting uh i failed within the first five hours of frostpunk uh just because i was just so mm-hmm. clueless about what to do so i think if i played it again w- you know without becoming a professional first without getting a college degree and how to succeed in frostpunk <laughs> i think i again would have I think that's the more intended experience from the developer. I think they want you to get into those gray areas uh, rather than just breeze through this war of mine and just be like, yeah. no, I never stole from anybody. Things were chill. We were playing guitar. You know, we had a moonshine <laughs> empire. <laughs> I was growing yeah. vegetables, eating rats. Things were cool. Yeah, I I definitely think uh, that that is, that is much preferred uh, I think e- even as a player, it's the better experience. It's the more meaningful experience yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I absolutely enjoyed this game. You know, I got a ton out of it. Uh, you know, I found it very compelling. Uh, I think you probably had the stronger experience just because y- you were forced to grapple with all those things, you know, in, in a way that I did not quite have to just because I got to do the redo. Right. That's true. But I think that there are the the game's not a one trick pony. It's not just mm-hmm. the game that forced me to go steal from that elderly couple or steal from the hospital or yeah. steal the stuff from the mechanic and then tr- sell it immediately right back to him. It's not that's not the game's trick. The game's trick is all of the little things throughout the playthrough, good and or sorry, bad and good. Uh, again, like. That was something I really wanted to make sure we highlighted in the episode is that there are moments of humanity and uh, generosity and stuff throughout the game too, uh, which people don't really talk about because it's, uh, I guess it's just catchier to say that this is the game that made me do those terrible things. Uh, but I'm glad that we got to camp out a little bit on those those nice moments too, because there are plenty. I think uh, we're going on about getting up to about three hours now. So I think uh, it's a good time to wrap this up. Um, I think that we have uh, maybe not exhausted all the things that we could say, but I I feel like we've done a, we've done, we've done our job here on this. Yeah, I'd say so. Talking about, talking about our experience with this war of mine. So uh, first of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you for giving me three hours of your time uh, to talk about this. It's, It's a big ask to, play the game and then spend even more time talking about it. Um, so I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Oh, it was a wonderful three hours. Um, Good. You know, I always enjoy listening to the podcast, you know, when I get an opportunity to listen to it, it was even more fun getting to be on it. So thank you. I'm glad that I was, uh, 
finally able to get an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the door, the door, there's a door. There's a, there's a, a metaphorical door that's always open. Uh, for you to come back. Love to have you back on sometime. Oh, yeah. I would love to be back. Cool. Uh, so at the end, I will remind everybody, you can check down in the show notes for links to First Five and a couple of my favorite episodes. Episodes? Videos? Videos. Videos on YouTube, episodes of the podcast. Uh, a couple of my favorite videos. And uh, yeah, go check it out. It's quality stuff. Highly recommended. And as always, thank you to everyone who sticks it out to the end of the episode. Another plug, if you did play this war of mine, or if you just want to talk about the episode, hop in the Discord server, come chat with us. And that will be all. Thank you all for listening again. Tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.